0: The Federal Trade Commission and 17 states, including Massachusetts, have sued Amazon. They accuse the retail giant of abusing its monopoly power to maintain higher prices, weaken competition, and harm consumers. Today is Tuesday, September 26th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins also ahead today. Federal wildland firefighters received pay increases last year as part of a bipartisan infrastructure law, but those raises were temporary, and there are fears now this will lead firefighters to quit. And salt water is creeping up the Mississippi River toward New Orleans. So, how does the region keep the water safe to drink? These stories and more coming up. It's 401.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden lent his support to striking auto workers with a visit to a picket line outside Detroit today. And Pierce Don Gagne has more.
2: This is the first time in history that a sitting president has walked a picket line with striking workers. Biden was joined by United Auto Workers President Sean Fain, who said that Biden's presence was a boost to all unionized workers in the country. Biden wore a black UAW ball cap and spoke through a bullhorn, telling striking UAW members outside a General Motors facility that they deserve significant pay raises, given the sacrifices they made to help the companies survive 15 years ago. We built the middle class. Yeah. Yeah. That's a fact. Let's keep going. You deserve what you've earned, and you've earned a hell of a lot more than you're getting paid now. On Wednesday, former President Trump visits the Detroit area in support of strikers. But his rally is scheduled to take place at a non-union manufacturing firm. Don Gagne, NPR News, Detroit.
1: A growing number of Senate Democrats are calling on New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez to resign after he was indicted on corruption charges. One of the most consequential voices is fellow New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. And here's Susan Davis reports.
3: In a lengthy statement, Booker said he found the allegations hard to reconcile with the person he knows. He said Menendez stepping down would not serve as an admission of guilt, but a recognition that there should be higher standards for public officials. More than a dozen fellow Senate Democrats are calling for Menendez to resign, and more are expected. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has not publicly weighed in on the matter yet, saying only in a statement last week that Menendez was entitled to due process and a fair trial. At a Monday press conference, Menendez said he would not resign and would fight what he called a politically motivated prosecution. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington.
1: On Wall Street, stocks sank today. Just before the close, the Dow was down nearly 400 points. As NPR's David Gur reports, Wall Street's worried about what the latest news about the U.S. economy means for the Federal Reserve's fight against high inflation.
4: New data on housing and consumer confidence shocked Wall Street. The number of homes under contract in August fell by 8.7 percent from a month earlier. Economists expected a drop of just 2.7 percent. And the Conference Board's measure of consumer confidence also declined more sharply than anticipated. The Federal Reserve says data are driving its decision-making, which is what's given investors pause. Meanwhile, shares of Amazon fell by about 4 percent after the Federal Trade Commission and 17 attorneys general filed suit against the retailer, alleging it's a monopoly. David Gura, NPR News, New York.
1: Just before the close, the Dow was down 1.1 percent, the Nasdaq down 1.5 percent. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts state legislators are sharing the details of a $1 billion tax reform package expected to get their approval this week. The package would provide about $561 million of relief in the fiscal year that began July 1st and more than a billion dollars once it takes full effect in 2027. The initiative's largest item is a more than $300 million credit for some 565,000 families with children and dependents. The package also would raise the threshold for the state's estate tax from $1 to $2 million. State lawmakers will begin to vote on the plan tomorrow. State Auditor Diana DeZoglio has released the results of a two-year audit of the agency that oversees the regulation of cannabis. Her office found that the Cannabis Control Commission allowed more than $10 million worth of cannabis products to be sold, even though they hadn't been tested for contaminants in more than a year. It also found the commission failed to ensure that marijuana establishments and labs reported positive tests for pesticides within the time legally required. The auditor says she appreciates the steps the commission has already taken to improve its compliance with the law. Tonight, Roxbury Community College will put a spotlight on the legacy of busing in Boston. It's the first in a series of events over the next year to mark 50 years since the courts ordered Boston Public Schools to desegregate. WBR's Amanda Beland has more from one of the organizers.
5: In the 1970s, Michael Curry was bused from his home in Roxbury to school in Charlestown. He says now is the time to reflect on the motivations of those who protested busing and desegregation.
6: I'd love to understand what was in their heart and their minds when they stood out on those streets. And this project that we've been doing has allowed us to have those types of conversations.
5: Tonight's event focuses on the community organizing that led up to the 1974 desegregation ruling. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. Clouds and sunshine
0: mixing up this afternoon. Tonight, partly cloudy, cool all the way down to the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunshine's back, temperatures in the mid-60s. 60 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than
7: 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at asylum.news. This is All Things Considered
8: from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. On Sunday, a televised football game produced such intense scrutiny that we can now surmise the condiments preferred by one Taylor Swift. The answers are ketchup and seemingly ranch. We will explain in a few minutes. First, this hour, some more serious news. The U.S. and 17 states are suing Amazon. They say the retail giant has abused its monopoly power, leading to higher costs for sellers and shoppers, We'll note that Amazon is among NPR's recent financial supporters and pays to distribute some of our content, but we cover it like any other company. NPR's Alina Seljuk is here to tell us more about the lawsuit. Hey, Alina. Hello, hello. OK, what's in the suit? What are the details?
10: Um, the suit itself could be pretty existential for Amazon. It is a sweeping antitrust case built by the Federal Trade Commission and a bipartisan group of attorneys general. It's filed in federal court in Seattle. And to your question, it accuses Amazon of breaking the law to remain the under defeated winner of online retail. And it largely focuses on how Amazon treats sellers on the platform.
9: Explain, what What kind of example can you give us?
10: Yeah, so to step back, most of what you buy on Amazon, about 60%, is sold by other companies, these third-party sellers. And Amazon has a tricky relationship with them. For them, it's both the owner on the, of the marketplace where they sell and a competitor on the very same marketplace. So It controls advertising. It controls what you see when you search for stuff. And in simple terms, it could mean Amazon knows if you're selling something that's suddenly really popular people really wanted, And Amazon can maybe sell the exact same thing for maybe Amazon less. Basics,
9: I think they're called.
10: And they can tweak the search results so that that Amazon option comes up higher. Huh. Uh, but it, it can go also deeper than that.
9: Explain how so.
10: So Amazon also has this huge delivery network, as we all know. And the lawsuit alleges that Amazon pressures sellers to use, uh, to, to pay for using it. And for sellers, that means Amazon can charge more and more and they can't really use any other shipping option. Hmm. And then there's the big accusation about prices. The lawsuit alleges that Amazon punishes sellers if they try to offer cheaper prices elsewhere on the internet. Here's what FTC
11: Chair Alina Khan said. Amazon's conduct causes online shoppers to face artificially high prices even when they're shopping somewhere other than Amazon.
10: Between the cut that Amazon takes from every sale, the shipping, perhaps advertising, she says after all of Amazon's fees, sellers effectively keep only half of what they make on the platform. But they also can't afford to leave. It's the top destination. And in the end, shoppers pay the price.
9: So what kind of a solution is the FTC asking for? What do the FTC and state attorneys general want the court to do?
10: They're asking uh, the court to force Amazon to change its anti-competitive behavior. No, the case isn't going as far as it could have. There is no language asking the court to, say, split up the company. But the case will take years to play out. So all of that could change.
9: What's Amazon said today?
10: Amazon, in a statement, argued the FTC's claims are wrong, um, that the lawsuit radically departs from the agency's mission to protect consumers. The company argues that if the government wins, the result would be, quote, uh, fewer products to choose from, higher prices, slower deliveries for consumers, and reduced options for small businesses.
9: Now, in another part of the show, we'll hear about the FTC chair's history of criticizing Amazon. It has been in her sights for so many years. Yes. Why is the commission bringing this case now?
10: So. So it has been working on this case for a while. The investigation did begin under President Trump. Um, but yes, Khan is a part of this new group of lawyers um, under President Biden who are really skeptical of big tech, who are rethinking competition law. And she did rise to prominence arguing that te- today's tech giants, and Amazon in particular, operate much like the oil barons and railroad tycoons back in the day and perhaps should be similarly broken up. So now that the investigation has reached the point of a case, she gets to test at least part of this legal thinking in federal court.
9: NPR's Alina Selyuk, thank you. Thank you. In
8: Israel, the usually solemn day of atonement, Yom Kippur, saw new controversy over the fate of the country's democracy. Protesters drove out a religious group that was seeking to pray in an iconic secular location and to conduct those prayers while segregating men and women. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv.
12: It took place Sunday night, the eve of Yom Kippur, in Tel Aviv, Israel's most secular liberal city. Several hundred protesters chanted shame at an Orthodox Jewish group setting up a Yom Kippur prayer service in a main public square at the heart of the city. The religious group's aim is to spread Judaism among Tel Aviv's youth, and the municipality allowed it to hold the prayers, but the city and Israel's Supreme Court had ruled the group could not set up a physical partition to separate men from women, as is orthodox custom. They did it anyway, and protesters tore down the divider, made of string and Israeli flags, and also blocked other public gender partitions in other cities. Orly Erez-Lichovsky of the Liberal Israeli Religious Action Center celebrated this as a victory. She's won legal battles against ultra-Orthodox Jewish discrimination against women on buses, public health clinics, and on the radio.
7: Seeing the sites was heartbreaking. You know, for me, it was very, very hard to see uh, uh, in Yom Kippur, which is the holy day for Jews. But I think we have to understand, most Israelis are no longer willing to accept not only that extremist version of this government trying to destroy Israel's democratic nature, but also we're not going to allow um, extremist orthodox to control our public sphere.
12: This really goes back to efforts by Israel's far-right orthodox Jewish government to limit the powers of the Supreme Court, which it sees as too liberal. That has sparked nearly 10 months of street protests from Israelis who fear the government will erode protections for women and minorities and impose an ultra-conservative version of Judaism on the public. As Yom Kippur ended, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu railed against quote leftist protesters rioting against Jews. His far-right security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, has upped the ante.
13: <laughs> he
12: said he'll hold prayers at that Tel Aviv square later this week. Anarchists, he said, will see you try to drive us out. Opposition leaders in parliament are accusing Netanyahu of stoking religious civil war. The battle over the role of religion in the streets of Israeli cities is shaping up to be a key issue on the ballot when Israelis vote in municipal elections next month. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
8: Taylor Swift may be entering her football era. Over the weekend, the global superstar was spotted in a football stadium cheering on the Kansas City Chiefs, specifically cheering on the tight end of the Chiefs, Travis Kelsey. Swift's appearance at Sunday's game and the fact that she and Kelsey left the stadium together blew up the internet. It seemed like Everybody had something to say about the new it couple, even legendary Patriots coach Bill Belichick.
4: Travis Kelsey's had a lot of big catches in his career.
2: (laughs) This would be the biggest...
8: As for Swifties, well, they seem to have embraced their queen's new boo. Sales for Kelsey's football jersey reportedly skyrocketed since Sunday. And here to talk about this meeting of two super fandoms is Nora Princiati, staff writer for The Ringer and major Swifty herself. Hello. Hello, hello. Okay, Nora, for listeners who may not be following all the ins and outs of Taylor Swift's dating life, give us a brief timeline of the rumored Swift Kelsey loves. Story. How did this all start? So it started
14: in July when Travis Kelsey went to one of Taylor's Eras Tour shows when she was in Kansas City. And he did something that a lot of Swift fans have done at the Eras Tour, which is that he made and wore and brought a friendship bracelet. And he did a funny thing, which is that he put his phone number on a friendship bracelet. I know, very savvy. And he tried to get it to Taylor, but was unsuccessful. Then he told the story of not getting through the inner circle Uh on his podcast with his brother, who's another NFL player. And then the rumors start, but that was what seeded some form of communication between the two of them that ended in Taylor accepting Travis's invitation to show up at Arrowhead Stadium. To see the Chiefs play the Bears on Sunday. In
8: perfect Chiefs colors. Okay, well, Swifties are famously passionate about the pop star. Football fans are also famously passionate about their teams. Can you just compare these two fandoms for me? Like, is knowing your favorite NFL player stats kind of like being able to identify all the little Easter eggs that Taylor's known to hide in her songs?
14: It sort of is. For two groups that I think in some ways don't identify as having very much in common with each other. There's an enthusiasm and a detail orientation and an obsessive quality that definitely. I love that they're colliding now. (laughs) Yeah, it's really great. There's a couple key differences though. One is that NFL players, for the scope of of the NFL writ large, you know, it's the biggest American professional sport. The players themselves can be relatively anonymous. When they play, you can't really see their faces. There's 53 guys on every roster. It's not the same type of superstardom that you find even in other sports and definitely not in pop music.
8: I want to know, what about the NFL and all of this? Because as we mentioned, sales for Travis Kelsey's jersey have apparently skyrocketed, and that could very well be because of Taylor's fans. And I saw that many of the post-game questions were about Taylor Swift's appearance at the game. The commentators were all talking about it. Is Taylor Swift going to be awesome or terrible for the NFL and the future of football? What do you think? Well, I suppose that remains
14: to be seen. I do think in general— the NFL is incredibly excited about getting a piece of the Taylor spotlight. You could already tell over the summer because the Ares Tour concerts, they were all in NFL stadiums.
15: Mm
6: -hmm.
14: And the football team that played in whatever stadium she was visiting, their social media account, their whole operation would bend over backwards to come up (laughs) with something that, you know, allowed them to sort of connect with the Taylor Swift fan base. So the NFL, which does want to improve its exposure and appeal to women especially, I think is thrilled about this.
8: That is Nora Princiati, staff writer for The Ringer and host of every single album, a pop music podcast. Thank you so much for breaking this down for us. Absolutely.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in the next 15 minutes, a new novel imagines a dystopian future in which Earth has been ravaged by climate change, but it also offers a very dark form of optimism.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University School of Graduate Studies. Advance your career and become a leader in your profession. SalemState.edu slash graduate. And the ICA explore waterfront views and new work by leading Boston artists. ICABoston.org stocks gave up a lot
0: of ground today. The Dow lost more than one and a tenth percent its worst day since March. S&P and Nasdaq both lost about one and a half percent. Cambridge will soon be home to a new federal health research agency. Federal officials announced today the city will be one of three sites in the country for the new Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health, or ARPA-H. The hub will bring together researchers, entrepreneurs, and investors to help accelerate solutions to diseases such as cancer, Alzheimer's, and diabetes. President Biden has allocated $1.5 billion for the effort over the next three years. The forecast is ahead. WBUR supporters include Delta Dental, reminding you
7: that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Discover the connection between oral and
0: overall health at ExpressYourHealthMA.org. Nice to see the sunshine break through the cloud cover today. 60 degrees now in the Boston area could fall all the way to the mid 40s overnight tonight. Tomorrow should feature a good deal more sunshine than today has, could make it to the mid 60s. Thursday, pretty much a repeat. Generally sunny and dry, highs about 66. 60 in Boston at 420. <laughs>
15: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, Amgen is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
8: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro. For months, the Biden administration has said drug overdose deaths are finally leveling off or even declining slightly. Well, now new data out of New York City and other parts of the U.S. undercut that hope. These numbers show dramatic increases in fatal drug deaths caused by fentanyl. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann is here to explain this latest information. Hey, Brian. Hi there, Ari. Let's start in New York City, where you are today. What's happening there?
17: Well, these latest numbers uh, that are from 2022 are are pretty grim. They show a 12% increase from the year before, with more than 3,000 people dying from drugs uh, in that year. That's a new record. The old normal for New York City until about 2011 was five to six hundred drug deaths a year, which wasn't great. But now we've hit a number roughly five times higher. And what appears to be happening is fentanyl. It continues to displace other less deadly, less potent street drugs. And fentanyl's also being taken in really toxic cocktails with other drugs. Who is the most vulnerable? This new report from New York City's Health Department shows, in fact, just how localized and kind of focused this public health crisis is. It's not happening equally across the city. First of all, men are four times more likely to die than women. Black New Yorkers are seeing huge increases in fatalities. And uh, another heartbreaking detail in this report is that a lot of the deaths are happening among older people with folks age 55 to 65 suffering the highest overdose rates.
9: Hmm. And beyond New York, what do the numbers look like in other parts of the U.S.?
17: Well, the data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that the overdose crisis is is grim. Again, 111,000 deaths roughly every year. And the impact is really uneven. The latest preliminary data from the CDC shows some states like Oregon, Nevada, and Washington are seeing big spikes in drug deaths, up more than 20%, even mm-hmm. bigger than what we're seeing in New York City. Other states seeing 10% increases above levels that were already uh, pretty ugly. Interestingly, there are states like Arkansas, Indiana, and Louisiana reporting significantly fewer drug deaths right now. And frankly, the experts I've spoken to just haven't been able to explain these patterns. We don't know why those big disparities are happening. So
9: these numbers are drug deaths, but as you've explained, it's mostly fentanyl deaths. What is being done to keep fentanyl off the streets?
17: Yeah, the Biden administration has ramped up efforts to target Mexican drug cartels that are supplying this fentanyl today. Uh, the White House announced new sanctions against the Sinaloa cartel. Some cities are trying to disrupt street drug markets where fentanyl is being sold directly to people with addiction. Uh, and this is in part a response to a lot of growing public concern. You know, Along with the overdose deaths, we're seeing more public use of drugs right now. It's more visible, more disruptive, and that sparked community backlash. But I have to say most experts I talk to are skeptical that fentanyl trafficking can be slowed. It's a uniquely easy drug to make and smuggle, so keeping it off the streets in places like Portland and Las Vegas and New York City, you know, so far nobody's figured out how to do that.
9: So if fentanyl is not likely to go away, what's being done to reduce the number of deaths from the drug?
17: Well, the Biden administration's rolled out a bunch of new policies to try to make addiction treatment more available. Uh, They've made naloxone available to buy over-the-counter. That's the nasal spray that reverses opioid overdoses. State and local governments are spending more money to try to make uh, treatment available. Uh, But these efforts are running headlong into big problems like homelessness and social isolation, a more toxic street supply of drugs that's, that's really hurting people. So what I'm hearing from experts is that this is a public health crisis, Ari, that's not going to be fixed anytime soon.
9: It's NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann.
17: Thank you. Thank you, Ari.
8: The state of Louisiana has asked for a federal emergency because of salt water that is moving up the Mississippi River. The slow-moving salty water has already seeped into drinking supplies in southern Louisiana, and it's moving up towards New Orleans. Hallie Parker with member station WWNO joins us now. Hi, Hallie. Hi. Okay, so I've heard this called a saltwater wedge. What does that mean, and why is this happening?
18: Yes, okay, so saltwater wedge 101. um, (laughs) Right now, we're in a historic drought all throughout the Mississippi River watershed, right? So there's way less water flowing down the river than usual. And, you know, when that happens, saltwater from the Gulf of Mexico can migrate upriver along the river's bottom, which is actually below sea level. Has this happened before? Yeah, so this is actually cyclical. It tends to happen once a decade down here, but usually it doesn't extend as far north as New Orleans. Nor does it happen in back-to-back years like it is right now. Um, the last time the saltwater made it up this far up the river was in 1988, and it only stuck around for a few days. But officials here, like Governor John Bell Edwards, have warned this time it's different.
6: Based on the current forecast, this event will be Uh, more severe and of longer duration. But there is no need uh, for panic.
8: No need for panic. Okay, well, how are residents actually reacting right now?
18: Well, as you can imagine, there's a lot of anxiety around this. Mm -hmm. Um, I know of people walking around grocery stores and leaving with eight cases of bottled water even though the city of New Orleans itself won't see effects until late October. So there's just a lot of questions about how safe it will be to drink and bathe in the water. Plus, salt water can actually be corrosive and damaging to pipes. New Orleans, like a lot of other areas, have a lot of lead pipes still left over, so there's concern about heavy metals leaching out.
8: And areas south of New Orleans have already experienced problems with their water, so what's the plan for them?
18: So, a sparsely populated area southeast of New Orleans called Plaquemines Parish actually didn't have clean tap water starting in June. Wow. And at that time, yeah, it was confined to about 2,000 people without water. And the local parish ended up distributing more than 1.5 million gallons of water a ton. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And as the salt water moves north, it might affect drinking water for nearly a million people. So officials across all levels of government know that they have to scale up response um, right now, they have an underwater barrier to slow the salt water to buy them time. There's plans to eventually ship in up to 36 million gallons of fresh water per day to help water treatment plants dilute the salt and keep it to safe levels, which will take a lot of giant barges. Right. And if the salt level becomes unsafe or starts to affect infrastructure, we'll start to see distribution of bottled water and bulk water across this region, just like we did in Plaquemines Parish.
8: Do you think there's a chance that this kind of situation will happen more often in the future?
18: Well, you know, as seas, as the sea levels just continue to rise and weather like droughts grow more extreme due to human caused climate change, the experts that I talk to say that this is unlikely to become a new normal, which is important, but we could start seeing it more frequently. And that means we need to start thinking about long term adaptation.
8: That is Hallie Parker of WWNO in New Orleans. Thank you so much, Hallie.
18: Thank you, also.
9: This is NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR, coming up in about 15 minutes. As driverless cars are making their way around major cities of America, historians remind us of when cars, meaning horseless carriages, were first driven onto the American landscape. That story is coming up. Only six games left for the Red Sox regular season. The first comes tonight as they start a quick two-game series with the Tampa Bay Rays. Tanner Hoke throws the
16: first pitch at seven ten. Zach Eflin starts for the Rays. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Explore Babson College programs at their virtual open house on October 4th and 5th. Register at babson.edu openhouse open house. The Museum of Science, featuring Arctic Adventure, an immersive Arctic world exploration with technology as your guide. Tickets at mos.org. And Winchester Natural Health, services focusing on conditions like endometriosis, thyroid support, and pain management. WinchesterNaturalHealth.com I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In a world where often only those who can afford a subscription
0: are the ones with access to the most credible, high-quality news sources, WBUR is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime, at no cost. But we can't take our future for granted – Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. So help us get to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors.
12: Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org.
19: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden visited Michigan today to join striking autoworkers on the picket line. NPR's Windsor-Johnston reports.
20: Members of the United Auto Workers are deadlocked with the companies over wage increases, a four-day work week, and increased benefits. White House press secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre says Biden's trip is designed to give striking
10: workers a boost. He's doing it because he wants to stand in in solidarity with the workers, which is something that this president continues to do and has done for the past
20: several years, is stay, stay on the side of workers. The United Auto Workers expanded the strike to General Motors and Stellantis Parts Distribution Centers across 20 states on Friday. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. Washington.
19: Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Justice Department is working to stem the opioid and fentanyl crisis in the U.S., providing more than $345 million to help people experiencing addiction. He says his agency is also going after the drug cartels.
21: So far in 2023, the DEA has seized over 55 million fentanyl pills and over 9,000 pounds of fentanyl powder.
19: The Federal Trade Commission today filed an antitrust lawsuit against Amazon, alleging the company has stifled competition on its website by overcharging sellers and burying listings offering lower prices on other sites. Seventeen states have joined the lawsuit. Amazon provides financial support to NPR. Target said today it's closing nine stores in four states, saying theft and organized crime are threatening the safety of employees and customers. It noted Target will still have 150 stores open in those markets, San Francisco, New York, Portland, and Seattle.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts U.S. Senators are calling for one of their veteran leaders to resign. Democratic New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez is facing a federal indictment on corruption charges. Senator Elizabeth Warren says he should step down and concentrate on his legal defense. Senator Ed Markey says on social media that Menendez broke the public's trust and should leave Congress. Menendez is accused of accepting bribes of cash, gold, and a new car. He has maintained his innocence and accuses those uh, asking him to step down of political expediency. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell testified today in support of a bill that would raise the minimum age for when someone can be criminally charged as an adult. Here's WBR's Deborah Becker.
22: The bill would raise the age for charging someone as an adult in Massachusetts from 18 to 21. Attorney General Campbell told the legislature's Judiciary Committee that incarcerating young people in adult correctional facilities does not make communities safer. In fact, young people have the highest, not the middle, not somewhere in the bottom, the
19: highest recidivism rate of any demographic in the adult system.
22: Campbell says science suggests that young adults' brains are not as developed as adults and they're more open to rehabilitation. The bill would raise the age over five years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. Massachusetts Senate
0: Republicans are urging President Biden to help with the migrant crisis in the state. Their letter says the state's shelters and health care facilities are overwhelmed by the large number of migrant families coming here. The authors call for expedited work permits for migrants in Massachusetts. They also call for increased federal resources to aid local governments with resources including shelter and education. This is WBUR.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com and Lesley University. Inspire a whole new generation of learners with an education degree from Lesley University. Get started today at lesley.edu. Turned out to be a pretty nice afternoon
0: overnight tonight. Partly cloudy, cold enough to add a blanket or turn up the heat. About 46 for a low tonight. Tomorrow, the sun's back, still breezy. Temperatures in the mid-60s once again. 59 degrees now in Boston at 435.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This
9: is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang.
15: It's not
8: hard to imagine how terrifying the world will be if we allow climate change to keep unfurling unfettered. And maybe that's why it's not a huge leap to believe the dystopian future that C. Pam Zhang lays out in her new novel, Land of Milk and Honey. A thick smog has ravaged the Earth's ecosystems. Crops die, biodiversity vanishes, the global food supply chain disintegrates, and the sensual pleasure of a good meal is a distant memory. For most people, anyway. High on a mountaintop on the Italian-French border, a research community bioengineers and hoards rare ingredients and species. Only the most exclusive wealthy people have access to this community. And then a chef looking for a job shows up. What unfolds is a story of greed, the perversion of science, and the elusiveness of pleasure. C. Pam Zhang joins us now. Welcome.
23: Thank you so much for having me.
8: Well, thank you for being with us. You are someone who clearly appreciates the sensual pleasure of food. That is immediately apparent when you read your novel. What was your relationship to food like growing up? I'm so curious.
23: Oh, that's so funny. Growing up, I was a very picky eater. Um, Really? (laughs) I was a horrible child, probably. I was afraid of eating most meat that wasn't white meat chicken, which is an affront in Chinese (laughs) families, of course. Yes, Um, I was just disgusted by things outside my realm of experience, including, for example, cheese, right? If you haven't grown up in a culture that introduces cheese early, it's rotting milk. It's disgusting. (laughs) And so (laughs) it was both a natural pickiness and the fact that my family was very poor growing up and so we couldn't afford to eat out. Um, And it wasn't until my senior year of high school that bored, I began reading food blogs. And so it was interesting to me how I came to food through the narrative possibilities first how it was a portal into other people's lives, how I was reading how others experience food first. That made me want to feel those same things. I mean,
8: your descriptions of food in this book are so graphic, but there was one thing I was wondering about, and that is how much you actually like meat. You mentioned that you only ate white meat chicken, but do you even like meat? Because some of these meat dishes you describe made me gag, like that scene with the limbs. I don't want to give anything else away, but I kind of wanted to vomit in my mouth when I was reading that what is what do you even like to eat meat?
23: I love meat now and I'm a very happy carnivore. Uh, <laughs> at the same time, I do think that I had to come around to enjoying meat by understanding like where it came from um, I do believe that if you are going to eat meat you should be able to look at a raw chicken carcass with the head and the feet and the organs and understand where everything is coming from. Taking um, the
8: full consequences of your ingesting. Exactly,
23: exactly. And to me, that actually makes the meat like more delicious and more succulent because I understand the kind of the the value of it. And also it kind of does mean that the older I've gotten, the less meat I eat. I think it just doesn't agree with me as much. <laughs>
8: I'm kind of in the opposite direction. I fully want to deny that the thing was a living animal before I put it into my mouth. (laughs) Well, you you know, the person behind all of this food that you talk about in this novel, it's the chef, the narrator of the story. Why did you choose to give her no name? Hmm. Oh, I'm actually surprised that that's a decision you didn't realize you made.
23: Yeah, yeah, it's. I'm thinking about it because yeah, it was a decision that I realized I had made when I was done with the book, frankly. Um, but I think when I reach deep into my subconscious, the chef is nameless because so much of the book is about identity and crafting an identity and then discarding an identity and sort of changing um, fundamentally who you are over the course. In the case of this book, of a dramatic year. And so I think that the namelessness of the chef really ties into these ideas of reinvention and constant rediscovery, and perhaps fundamentally on some level, never fully knowing who you are, but that not always being a negative quality.
8: What an interesting answer. So her identity evolves over time, but you know her race does not. You made a Mm. very distinct choice to make her Asian, in this novel. Mm-hmm. Why was that important for this character to be Asian?
23: Yeah. So I've been thinking for a long time, probably my entire lifetime, about the loaded duality of being an Asian woman in America, but then increasingly in the world, right? Where you're simultaneously hyper-visible, hyper mm-hmm. and invisible, right? Um, yes. So many of us have the experience of being mistaken for other Asian women who look nothing like us, who are twenty 100%. or thirty years older, younger. Yeah, you several I, inches you know taller. What I'm yes, about. several oh, yes. inches it's taller. Yes, it's happened many, many thing. times yeah, in my life. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, and so that was so key to uh, this character who would kind of give up all of herself to take this last chance at this grand job on this mountain enclave in the book, right? Um, I am thinking about this Tressie McMillan Cotton idea of beauty being violence and expanding upon that, the act of making oneself desirable for a job, uh, for a relationship, for anything, is also a violence, right? There's so much warping of oneself and reshaping of oneself to fit into a mold. And um, I think that Asian women do that every day.
8: You know, when I step back and I think about the very existence of this research community, it feels like not only that you're snickering at the confidence of rich people who think they can change the world, but I feel like you're also snickering at our confidence in science to fix our problems. Is, is that a fair interpretation?
23: I love that you picked up on the snickering. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that's a wonderful interpretation. I am a deep lover of science. And to me, it's a little bit like magic because it is so much out of my own domain. But at the same time with this book, I was thinking a lot about how scientific progress can become a form of self-interest, right? And in the case of environmental science, a form of self-interest that's coded as selfless. Isn't it the ultimate form of human hubris to imagine that we alone can and must come up with a solution to save the planet? Um, It puts humanity at the center of a story that is so many billions of years older than us that has so many more actors in the form of other flora and fauna. Um, and so, perhaps what you're picking up on with the snickering is that one thing that continues to give me hope is the idea of that we is that if humanity really messes it up and we make ourselves extinct, the planet will survive without us, the planet will be just fine. And that is a strange comfort.
8: I love that see pam Jong's new book is called land of milk and honey thank you so much for being with us
23: yeah thank you that was really fun what a delight
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Federal wildland firefighters have faced staffing shortages and low morale for more than a decade. Lawmakers attempted to create a fix by increasing their pay, but the money for that pay is running out. NPR politics reporter Ximena Bustillo has the story.
24: Rachel Granberg didn't plan on being a firefighter. I wanted to be a wildlife biologist. That's what she went to grad school for. But along the way, she found herself working for the federal government in the nation's vast forests.
25: Ended up just completely dropping all of the wildlife biology stuff and fell in love with fire. It is so cool.
24: Now she works for what she calls her chosen family, on hand crews and helicopters putting out wildfires and managing public lands alongside thousands of others employed by the U.S. Agriculture and Interior Departments.
25: Oh, golly. Every day is different. That's part of the fun. You never know what you're going to get. Every fire throws a curveball at you.
24: But there's one curveball, Granberg, and nearly 15,000 other federal wildland firefighters can't
25: fight off will there be a pay fix? How many people are quitting? How many people are just going to finish out the season and never come back?
24: Federal wildland firefighters stand to lose up to half of their salaries in the coming weeks. That's because last year they received pay bumps as a part of the bipartisan infrastructure law.
5: The bill was temporary. It was always
24: meant to be temporary. That's Forest Service Deputy Chief Jaleth Hall Rivera. We are now coming to a time when that is going to go away. And in its place, Firefighters don't know what to expect, because right now there's nothing. Paul Rivera said that fire seasons are becoming fire years. This means more people are needed to fight fires and manage forests for longer time frames and more often. And the current pay and benefits scale was not designed for this intense work.
25: We also are taking, I think, a much larger
24: toll on our employees because of the way that we have to respond. That's why federal wildland firefighters have been asking for a new pay scale for over a decade.
2: I could walk down the street to Home Depot and get an entry-level job that pays more than my job does
26: as a captain.
24: That's Ben McLean, a wildland firefighter currently out on assignment.
26: Recruiting people to do this job is becoming more difficult, which means we have to work longer and longer hours and longer and longer seasons.
24: Entry-level jobs pay about $15 an hour. A captain like McLean is barely making $70,000 now. Next month, that will drop to $50,000 if nothing changes. But some state outfits will pay $50,000 just for people without experience. And only Congress can come up with a permanent solution to the pay problem there are efforts in both the House and the Senate. Still, lawmakers have a limited number of days to reach a deal and include it in any effort to prevent a government shutdown on September 30th.
25: I am preparing for that government shutdown by I am always available. I have been working all my days off. I have been burning myself out just because I know that that shutdown might be coming that's
24: Granberg again, who fears a shutdown could further impact her pay. But
25: even if the shutdown doesn't happen, I'm going to receive a pay decrease and I need to be
27: ready for it.
24: The Interior Department is set to run out of funds for firefighter supplemental pay on September 30th. The Agriculture Department estimates it will run out in November. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, he writes the songs that make the whole world sing. Barry Manilow has had his 637th performance in the International Theater in Las Vegas. That means he broke the record held by Elvis. Could it be magic? In about 20 minutes here at 90.9 WBUR.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis, better understand your clients, build your clinical skills, and advance your career in this psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply, now accepting applications for spring. Learn more at bgsp.edu. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your
0: success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC. The Red Sox are finishing out the season with games against two clubs with the best records in the American League, Tampa Bay and then Baltimore. Tampa Bay comes tonight for a quick two-night series at Fenway, and then the Sox head down to Baltimore. A lot of change-ups in the weather today. It took a while, but sunshine finally burned through some of the clouds this afternoon. Tonight should be partly cloudy, cold enough to add a blanket, about 46 for a low. Then tomorrow the sun's back, still breezy, in the mid-60s again. 59 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.49.
26: We are the Union. New- yes, we
28: are!
0: The United Auto Workers are on strike over wages, benefits, health and safety, and the car industry's shift toward electric
16: vehicles.
2: Automakers are using this transition as a smokescreen to lower wages and job quality for auto workers.
0: That's On Point tomorrow at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro. This month marks a somber milestone for the New York City Fire Department. On September 11, 2001, 343 department members died on the scene of the World Trade Center. Well, now 22 years later, the same number have died of illnesses related to their exposure to toxic chemicals at Ground Zero. NPR's Becky Sullivan joins us now. Hey, Becky. Hi there, Ari. I imagine fire department officials have been bracing for this moment. They saw it
7: coming, yeah.
27: right? Yeah, yeah. They said they had long known this day was coming. Um, they made the announcement this weekend uh, because two fire department members had recently died. One, an EMT named Hilda Venata, uh, who died of cancer, along with a retired fire a retired firefighter named Robert Fulco, who, who passed of pulmonary fibrosis, which is a lung condition that is often related to toxic material exposure. Uh, the department said that both of those deaths are related to the time that they spent working in the rescue and recovery operation at the World Trade Center site. Um, you know, the New York Fire Department, as you said, lost those 343 members on September 11th, most of whom died when the two towers collapsed. Uh, the collapse, of course, practically coated all of lower Manhattan in smoke and ash and dust left behind. Um, a massive pile of rubble that burned for
9: months. What more can you tell us about the toxic chemicals that the firefighters were exposed to?
27: Yeah. You know, I put the question to Dr. Michael Crane today. He heads the World Trade Center Health Program at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York. And he said that the air there at Ground Zero, especially right after the collapse on that first day or two, it basically had, you know, bits of pulverized building material, the electronics that were in the offices, glass of the windows, nasty stuff like asbestos and silica, ash and um, carcinogens from the fires. Here's what he said about the air
26: basically you, you looked at it and you said, that's terrible, right? I mean, it, it looked bad, it smelled bad. It, when people went in with respirators on, the air was so thick with particles that the filters would, would plug up you know, within an hour.
27: You know, and then not everybody had masks or respirators. There were also just mixed messages about whether it was safe to be there and breathe the air. Um, You know, but firefighters had to be there uh, first for rescue, then recovery. And they especially had high levels of exposure, uh, Dr. Crane said.
26: They would dig through the pile and move the beans. And then they'd lift something and flames would shoot up because it was still on fire down below. All the chemicals and all the oil and all the stuff that's flammable in a building like that would go on fire again because it met oxygen when they when they uh, you know opened up the space
27: So, you know, so within a month of 9-11, even as the cleanup was still ongoing, firefighters were already starting to report airway, digestive symptoms like uh, or symptoms like cough, shortness of breath, um, heartburn. And in the years since, many have been diagnosed with serious conditions, including cancer. And so the fire department said this weekend that 11,000 current and former employees have some kind of World Trade Center related illness, 3,500 of which have cancer. Hmm. And how
9: widespread are illnesses like that tied to 9-11 beyond the fire department?
27: Yeah, so I mean, obviously there were first first responders who weren't uh, from the New York City Fire Department, um, and then also affected beyond first responders was anybody who lived and worked or went to school in lower Manhattan and uh, some parts of Brooklyn. And so in total, there are 125,000 people enrolled in the CDC's World Trade Center Health Program. Those conditions of course range from those respiratory issues like asthma, sleep sleep apnea, to mental health conditions like anxiety and PTSD, and about a quarter of the people enrolled have cancer. Many have died um, more these days than died, than the 3,000 or so who were killed in the attacks on September 11th. Um, and since exposure to toxic chemicals can have a really long tail, uh, even though it's been t- 22 years, it's still not over yet for people who were there that day.
9: And NPR's Becky Sullivan, thank you.
27: You're welcome.
8: Driverless taxi cabs have been swarming streets in San Francisco, Phoenix, and Austin for months. And they're likely driving themselves soon to a city your way. Some freaked out passengers have used social media to document what happens when a driverless car picks you up.
13: I'm over here. Okay. Wait, come back. Come back. What's happening? Wait, where's she going? Oh, is she parking? Oh,
8: the nervous laughter and mild alarm made NPR's Netta Ulibi wonder what it was like when cars first hit American streets around a hundred years ago. Before
20: driverless cars, there were horseless carriages. And people would yell... Get a horse! Get a horse! That's from the movie The Magnificent Ambersons. It was made in the 1940s, but set 25 years earlier, back when cars were newfangled beasts that had to be cranked by hand and pushed in order to work.
21: I'm pushing.
2: Push harder. Automobiles were frightening to a lot of people at first. The early automobiles were noisy, they were dangerous, they had no seat belts. they ran over pedestrians.
20: Historian Victor McFarland says cars were much scarier to people in the early 1900s than driverless cars are to us now. They're prone to problems like driving past you, getting stuck in wet cement, or just cluelessly sitting there. Sir, we cannot move, we're sorry. In this TikTok video, passengers in a driverless cab talk to a cop trying to wave them past an obstacle in the road.
2: This car won't <laughs> let us move! We, we're not driving!
20: Back in the early days of driving, some people were afraid of the freedom and independence suddenly available to entire classes of people, historian Sage Matthews says. Like Black people, whose movements were restricted by Jim Crow, and women, and young people who found in cars potential for sexual liberation. One of the early concerns... Is that the back seat in these cars were about the length of a bed and people were using it for such things. But today, she says, parents see the appeal in sending out youngsters in driverless cars. If I could have a driverless
25: car drive my daughter to every boring playdate,
0: that would transform
26: my life.
20: <laughs> Matthew says concerns today include questions about who might be liable if driverless cars are used to carry illegal drugs. And that reminds her of a century ago when people were worried about cars giving giving. giving bootleggers more speed, discretion, and range. And back then, like now, there were concerns about the future of certain jobs. A hundred plus years ago, we were worried about Teamsters being out of work. Teamsters then drove teams of horses. That's how the union started. Today, they include truckers who might soon compete with driverless vehicles to get their own lanes and laws of traffic.
29: You can't have congestion-free driving just because you constantly build roads.
20: Now is an excellent time, says historian Peter Norton, to learn from what has not worked
29: in the past. It doesn't automatically get safe just because you have state-of-the-art tech.
20: State-of-the-art tech terrified one TikToker taking a driverless cab in Phoenix last May.
13: Oh, we're making a left-hand turn without using the left hand turn lane, the middle turn lane? Okay, that was interesting,
2: but we made it. So your devilish machines are going to ruin all your old friends, Eugene. Eh, Do you
23: really think they're going to change the face of the land?
20: In the movie The Magnificent Ambersons, we meet a character who makes horseless carriages. Even he is not so sure they're a great idea.
6: Maybe that they won't add to the beauty of the world or the life of men's souls. But automobiles have come. And almost all outward things are going to be different because of what they bring.
20: And now that they drive themselves, historians say, we need to remember that the world and the streets belongs to us and not to the cars. We need to stay behind the wheel, even if that's only a figure of speech. Netta Ulibi, NPR News.
9: Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Penguin Random House, publisher of presidential inaugural poet Amanda Gorman's Something Someday, a picture book to inspire hope and change, illustrated by Christian Robinson. Available where books are sold. From the Lodestar Foundation inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR, a nice late afternoon and evening on the cool side, 59 degrees now in Boston. Tonight should be partly cloudy all the way down to the mid-40s. Tomorrow in the mid-60s, lots of sunshine tomorrow. Then for Thursday, sunny sticking to the
22: mid-60s. This is WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover city space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, city space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at wbur.org slash rentals. I'm here and now
19: executive producer Carlene Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime at our app or at WBUR.org.
0: WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Striking auto workers in Michigan don't like the White House's push for electric vehicles, but they liked it a lot when the man behind the plan joined them on the picket line today.
29: The first time in our
21: country's history that a sitting USA president All right. has came out and stood on the picket line.
0: More on what the White House is calling a historic moment. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, municipal and county officials are facing high levels of harassment and even threats. Some worry this may tip into violence as the 2024 election draws near. And we'll hear about the woman leading the Federal Trade Commission. Lena Kahn has long put Amazon in her sights. The antitrust case her office filed today targets the company top to bottom control of e-commerce. These stories and Wall Street numbers, coming up, it's 501.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. In a historic move, President Biden joined the picket line of auto workers on strike in Michigan. Outside a General Motors facility, the president said workers deserve more. NPR's Deepa Shivram reports.
25: President Biden, donning a
24: UAW baseball cap, joined dozens of workers fighting for a better union contract. The
25: president said workers deserved more pay. You
2: deserve
6: the
24: significant raise you need and other benefits. Let's get it! UAW President Sean Fain praised the president for his support. The union has not endorsed a candidate in the 2024 election, though they supported Biden in 2020. Deepa
25: Shivaram, NPR News.
6: Amazon now faces a sweeping monopoly lawsuit from federal regulators and 17 state attorneys general. Case alleges Amazon is causing higher prices for sellers and shoppers. More from NPR's Alina Salyuk.
10: Most items on Amazon are now sold by other sellers and the Federal Trade Commission alleges Amazon pressures them into paying for Amazon's own delivery network, the cost of which has been rising. It also alleges that Amazon punishes sellers that try to offer cheaper prices elsewhere on the Internet. Here's FTC Chair Lina Khan. Amazon's conduct causes online shoppers to face artificially high prices even when they're shopping somewhere other than Amazon. Amazon in a statement argued that the FTC was wrong and its case could itself lead to higher prices, lower deliveries and fewer options for both sellers and shoppers. The case filed in a federal court in Seattle is likely to play out over years. Alina Seljuk, NPR News, Washington.
6: Attorneys for former President Trump are rejecting a request from prosecutors for a narrow gag order in the former president's 2020 election interference case. They're calling on a federal judge to deny the request as Ryan Luke In a
13: new court filing, Trump's attorneys say a gag order would violate the former president's First Amendment rights in the middle of the 2024 presidential election. They allege the prosecutor's proposal is an effort by the Biden administration to, quote, unlawfully silence its most prominent political opponent. And they are calling on Judge Tanya Chutkin to deny the motion. Special counsel Jack Smith submitted his request for a narrow gag order earlier this month, arguing that Trump has made repeated public statements attacking the residents of Washington, D.C., the court and prosecutors, comments that Smith says could undermine the integrity of the proceedings and taint the jury pool. Judge Shutkin has yet to rule on the motion. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
6: Meanwhile, the latest wrinkle for Trump, a judge is sided with State Attorney General Letitia James in a civil suit. It accuses Trump of illegally inflating his assets and net worth by billions of dollars to get better terms on bank loans and insurance. A major down session on Wall Street today. The Dow fell 388 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Senators Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey of Massachusetts are urging fellow Democrat Bob Menendez to resign his Senate seat following his indictment last week on federal bribery charges. WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports Warren and Markey have joined a growing list of Democrats who say Menendez should step down.
26: Markey posted on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, the public's trust has been broken. Senator Menendez should resign. Warren told the Boston Globe these are serious charges and it's time for Menendez to step away from the Senate. Federal authorities allege Menendez and his wife accepted hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bribes, including cash, gold and a Mercedes Benz from three businessmen. But so far, New Jersey's senior senator is vowing to fight the charges. On Monday, Menendez told reporters prosecutors get it wrong sometimes. Warren and Markey are among at least 13 Democratic senators, including Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire and Peter Welch of Vermont, who say it's time for Menendez to go. For
0: 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Legislators on Beacon Hill are considering raising the state's minimum wage. One proposal brought up in a hearing today would hike it from $15 an hour to 20 by the year 2027. John Shaw is the founder of El Jefe Taqueria in Boston and a member of the group Business for a Fair Minimum Wage. He says local businesses will be able to retain the workforce and spend less in the long run.
26: If you're in a cycle where you're Constantly hiring and losing people and hiring and training and then losing them. It just is so much more expensive to do that than to actually pay people living wages and to have, and to keep them.
0: Opponents, including the head of the Mass Restaurant Association, say the measure would increase wages across the board at a rate that's not sustainable for restaurant owners. Several cities are holding preliminary elections today. They include Beverly, Fitchburg, and certain districts in Chelsea. Polls will remain open until 8 tonight. Took a while, but finally the sunshine burned through some of the clouds this afternoon. Should be partly cloudy and cold overnight tonight, about 46 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, sun's back, still breezy. Temperatures in the mid 60s once again. 59 degrees now in Boston at 507. WBUR
13: supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
8: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. In a few minutes, we will hear from Las Vegas, where a long-standing record set by none other than Elvis Presley has been eclipsed. More about Barry Manilow's achievement coming up. But first, today in Michigan, President Biden grabbed a bullhorn and joined auto workers on strike outside a General Motors facility. He told them they should get a raise.
2: You deserve what you've earned, and you've earned a hell of a lot more than you're
24: getting
8: paid now. This is the first time, at least in modern history, that a sitting U.S. president has walked a picket line. And NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid joins us now to talk
30: about everything. Hey, Asma. Hi there, Elsa. Okay, so what was the scene like? Tell us more about what Biden said. You know, the president was trying to show that he's a union guy and that he understands the plight of union auto workers and what they're going through right now with this strike. Uh, He put on a black UAW baseball cap before he stood up in front of the crowd. And I will say, Elsa, he only spoke for a few minutes, but his central message was that the auto companies are doing well, that they are doing far better than they were during the Great Recession in 2008, when these workers sacrificed a lot to keep the companies afloat. And since the companies, he said, are doing better Financially, the workers ought to be doing a lot better, too.
6: You deserve the significant raise you need and other.
2: Let's get it. We lost.
30: Okay. You know, Elsa. He was there to show solidarity with the workers, but the White House has not been very clear on whether Biden supports, you know, the specific financial demands that workers are seeking.
8: Hmm. Well, I'm curious. I mean, given that no president is known to have done this, what went into this decision to have Biden go to Michigan and stand with these workers?
9: Mm
30: Well, Biden is a union man. I will say he has been no stranger to picket lines over the course of his political career. Uh, He even joined one during the 2020 campaign. But I will say uh, the job of a president is fundamentally different than a senator or a political candidate. Um, You know, the president has to also work with auto execs and and Biden has had to as well. Um, You know, so I do think that this has been a challenge in terms of figuring out exactly how to navigate the striking situation. You know, there were also some awkward moments between the UAW and the White House when this strike began. Um, Biden initially said that he was sending two high-ranking administration officials to Michigan to help. And then you heard the UAW publicly downplay any role that the White House could have in brokering a deal. Um, Those uh, administration officials ultimately stayed back in Washington. They did not go to Michigan. And then on Friday, you heard the UAW publicly invite President Biden to join them on the picket line. And the White House says it took up the invitation. Uh, so that's kind of the backstory of how this all happened. But else, I, I will say it's also hard to ignore the politics of this moment and the context in which this is all happening. Biden's trip came about after the former president and the current Republican frontrunner Donald Trump announced that he would skip the GOP presidential debate and instead go to Michigan to rally auto workers. And Democrats were nervous that Biden would potentially make himself vulnerable. Vulnerable by letting Trump take up all the oxygen on this issue. Yeah, let's talk more about that. How unusual is it that a Republican
8: presidential candidate is making this appeal to auto workers?
30: It is highly unusual. And frankly, if Trump was not making this pro-worker pitch, I'm not sure that a Democratic politician like Biden could have the political wheel room to join a picket line. Uh, you know, the other thing, Elsa, is that the cultural conversation in the country has fundamentally shifted. Um, unions are more popular with the public than they have been in decades. You mm-hmm. see that in political, uh, opi- you know, public opinion polling. Uh, and Trump is trying to step into this political moment. He's going to be going there to Michigan tomorrow, notably to a non-union auto supply shop. Um, so I will say, you know, he's been hammering Biden over his policies to expand electric vehicles. Um, that is something that some auto workers are concerned about, too. But the immediate issue is not electric vehicles. It is a union contract.
8: That is Ampere's Asma Khalid. Thank you so much, Asma.
30: My pleasure.
9: Today, the Federal Trade Commission and 17 states effectively declared war on one of the biggest companies in the world. A new lawsuit accuses Amazon of abusing its monopoly power to hurt shoppers and sellers. The chair of the FTC has had the company in her sights for a long time. When she was a Yale law student, Lena Kahn wrote an influential paper arguing that antitrust laws had failed to keep Amazon in check. In another part of the program, we'll dig into the details of the new lawsuit. Right now, let's look more closely at the woman leading the charge against Amazon with Wall Street Journal tech policy reporter Ryan Tracy. Welcome. Thank you. Let's start with that 2017 paper that Lena Kahn wrote. It went viral, which is very unusual for legal scholarship. What was it about her thinking that caught everybody's attention?
29: Well, it tapped into something that a lot of people in Washington were thinking about, which was the power of large technology companies and also just the power of big companies in the economy in general and you know these there had been concerns and discontent about that bubbling going back to the 2008 financial crisis and the concerns about big banks and she and other scholars started to tell this story about how the lack of enforcement of antitrust laws was to blame for this.
9: And so broadly, you have this concern about big business, more narrowly big tech. And then specifically, has Amazon kind of always been Lena Khan's
29: white whale? In some ways, yes. You know, in this paper, she used Amazon as the example to tell this story about antitrust laws. And she wrote that it was as if Jeff Bezos had charted the company's growth by drawing a map of antitrust laws and then devising routes to smoothly bypass them, in her words. The argument was that antitrust had started to focus kind of myopically, in her view, on low consumer prices, which are obviously a good thing. But her argument was, if you just look at those at that measure in the short term, you're missing something bigger going on, and that is the health of the market as a whole and problems that creep up when companies come to dominate a market over a period of years.
9: She's been chair of the FTC for a little over two years now. What's her track record been like? Any big wins or losses to note?
29: Well, she and her defenders would certainly point to what they view as wins. A lot of those are on the merger front where companies have abandoned deals that might otherwise have gone through in sectors like defense, for example, uh, because the FTC has raised questions about them and either filed lawsuits or threatened to file lawsuits. But there have also been some pretty high profile losses, including in the tech space. So the FTC tried to block Facebook's acquisition of a virtual reality app developer. It lost on that. And more recently, uh, in probably the biggest loss. It failed to prevent Microsoft from buying the video game studio Activision. And those episodes have raised some questions about whether she can translate these theories into practice.
9: Do you have any sense of what she's like as a person?
29: You know, she's a very polite person. She's very careful in the way that she deals with the media in general. You know, she tries to not make news when she's out in public appearances. You know, uh, to see someone as young as her get into that position. um, She's 34, is that right? Yeah. And that makes her, you know, one of the youngest, if not the youngest FTC commissioner of all time, let alone someone who's running the agency. Uh, She's also got a young kid at home. So, you know, it's kind of amazing. The FTC is not just antitrust. Its authority reaches across the entire economy. You know, the FTC brings cases about contact lenses and funeral homes and you name it. So the FTC is, is a really big job.
9: Wall Street Journal tech policy reporter Ryan Tracy. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And tune in tomorrow to hear us speak with FTC Chair Lena Khan herself about the new lawsuit against Amazon.
8: More specifically, looks like Barry himself has made it. The king of soft rock has broken a record once held by the king.
27: I'm all shook up. Mm
9: 70s icon Barry Manilow has now played more shows at Vegas' International Theater than the previous record holder, Elvis Presley. It was a little bit of magic for Fanilos.
28: It's a testament
2: to his longevity.
8: Matt Kellerman is an entertainment writer in Las Vegas, and he says this new milestone has solidified the 80-year-old as one of the city's staples.
2: If you really want to see a good show, Barry Manilow is a great place to start. In the early 60s, you would have wanted to see the Rat Pack. In the late 60s, early 70s, you would want to go see Elvis. Bright like city gonna set my soul, gonna set my
21: soul
13: on
21: fire.
9: Elvis began performing at the theater at the Westgate Resort Hotel, then called the International Hotel, in 1969. He racked up a total of 636 shows by 1976.
8: Well, when Manilo played his 637th show at that venue, he honored the king by singing Hound Dog, wearing a red jacket with Elvis's iconic TCB Lightning Bolt logo stitched
2: on the sleeve.
9: Kellerman says both performers had an it factor that drew a crowd.
2: You see old footage of Elvis performing, they're just like near hysterical. With Barry, it's not hysterics, but I mean, there's very few shows that I've ever seen where people were so happy to be there. They're happy because of their devotion to Barry Manilow.
9: In recognition of the new milestone, Manilow received a key to the iconic Vegas Strip. September 23rd was also declared Barry Manilow Day in the city for his help in establishing it as a significant landmark for entertainment.
8: Kellerman agrees that the impact of a Vegas residency has shifted.
2: There was a time when it was looked at like the place where entertainers went to retire. You know, they're usually veterans, but they're just so vibrant. And people at the audiences, what's unlike most places, they're all from different places. The only thing that they have in common is their devotion to the headliner.
9: And in that spirit, after breaking Elvis's record, Manilow thanked the people that made it happen.
17: It really is all about you guys. It really is. It's,
20: you know, I love all the awards and all, but I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. Thank you for doing tonight.
8: However, even if Barry Manilow and Elvis pooled their impressive performance records together, they would still have a ways to go to defeat the longest ever Vegas residency, Donnie and Marie Osmond's 1,730
9: shows. But hey, Manilow just announced more Vegas dates for 2024, so who knows what miracle might be around the corner.
0: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday afternoon. A showdown in Congress over so-called swipe fees bids retailers against the credit card industry. What's a stake for shoppers? Coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran
7: with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And Boston Ballet's Fall Experience featuring four dynamic ballets
0: on stage October 5th to the 15th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Stocks gave up a lot of ground today. The Dow lost more than one and a tenth percent. Its worst day since March. S&P and Nasdaq both lost about one and a half percent. The city of Salem is getting state approval to give a $53 million tax break to the energy company Crowley. The Boston Business Journal reports Crowley plans to develop 42 acres of vacant land next to Salem Harbor Power Station. They plan to build an offshore wind terminal. Salem will forgo an estimated $53.5 million in property taxes from the site to support its construction. The forecast is on the way.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School, where faculty, students, and researchers are advancing together. More at umassmed.edu together. And Margulies Peruzzi, architects and interior designers dedicated to helping their clients in workplace, science, healthcare, and real estate. More at mparchitectsboston.com. Nice to see some sunshine break
0: through the clouds today. 59 degrees now could fall all the way to the mid 40s overnight tonight. Tomorrow should feature a good deal more sunshine than today did, could make it to the mid 60s. Thursday, pretty much a repeat, sunny and dry, highs about 66 degrees.
15: It's 5:20. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
8: And I'm Elsa Chang. On Monday, Ukraine said it had killed the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet in a missile strike on the naval headquarters in occupied Crimea. But earlier today, the Russian Defense Ministry published a video appearing to show that same commander participating in a meeting with top military officials. So what might all this tell us about the war in Ukraine? Well, to help us think this through, we're joined now by retired U.S. Navy Admiral James Stavridis. Welcome. Thanks, Elsa. So let me just get your initial reaction to this whole back and forth over this reported killing of the commander of Russia's Black Sea Fleet. What do you make of it?
26: First of all, there's always fog and war, so we don't know if he has been killed or not. There's no way to know when this video was made. But here's the point. If he was killed... As a result of Ukrainian action, that's the first time an admiral has been killed in combat since the Second World War.
8: Wow. Okay. well, let's just follow that path through a little bit. if what Ukrainians have said is true, that they did kill a top Russian admiral and his staff, and again, we don't have the facts confirmed as of the timing of this taping, lay out for us what kind of effect you see that having on Russian operations
26: first there will be an immediate tactical effect because when you cut the head off a snake the snake is not very effective anymore this staff and potentially this admiral were the ones actually directing the entire black sea fleet which has a vital mission in this war which is to cut off the ukrainian economy so immediately there'll be confusion lack of direction lack of orders number 2 there's a huge morale factor here. Again, if it's true, particularly the Admiral killed, um, that is the type of thing that reverberates down to the youngest sailor on the deck plates. And then number three, strategically, um, where do you take the Black Sea Fleet if you're the Russian Minister of Defense, when you have nobody to command it, um, the strategic impact will go on for a year or so until a new commander is appointed, gets experience, comes into play. So this potentially, if true, is going to have a very significant impact on the war at sea in Ukraine.
8: Well, let me ask you about this. Defense analysts have talked for months about Ukrainian forces severing the land bridge to isolate Crimea. Now we're seeing the Ukrainians hammering Russian forces, especially naval forces in Crimea. Is this a new strategy or or is this just part of isolating Crimea?
26: I think it's the latter. Um, Since the day one of this conflict and really reaching back to 2014, When the Russians first invaded and occupied Crimea. This has been a central goal, and they know, the Ukrainians know, in order to consummate this goal, they have to isolate the Russian forces that are on that peninsula. They do it by severing the land bridge, as you mentioned a moment ago, and depleting the forces of the Russian Black Sea Fleet, that severs, if you will, the sea bridge. They need to do both of those. I think they're making real progress.
8: And what is the overall impact of hitting Russian naval vessels? In real terms, does that mean Russia won't be able to fire cruise missiles into Ukraine? It'll prevent grain shipments into the Black Sea? What are the practical implications?
26: You just hit two of them, uh, the most important two. One is, as you say, the use of the Black Sea Fleet to launch these cruise missiles will be uh, depleted because of lack of command and control, because various ships are being sunk or damaged. And then more importantly, in my view, strategically, the Russians lose the ability to perform sea control on the Black Sea, meaning that they will not be able to stop grain shipments. Their objective in doing that is to strangle the Ukrainian economy, and they've had pretty good success so far. So any damage to that Black Sea Fleet is very important for the Ukrainians.
8: That is retired U.S. Navy Admiral James Stevridis. Thank you so much for joining us
26: today. My pleasure. Thank you so much.
9: There's been a dangerous breakdown in civil discourse in this country. A new survey shows that local officials are experiencing increased hostility as they do their jobs. NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef is covering this. Hey, Odette. Hey, Ari. Tell us more about the survey. What does it show?
28: Well, the survey asked more than 1,300 local officials um, whether in the last three months they had experienced insults, harassment, threats, or even attacks in doing their job. Um, So think RE mayors, city council members, and people on county governing boards. Uh, And what the survey found is that we continue to be at an elevated baseline for those kinds of hostile interactions. Um, Nearly half of the respondents had been insulted within the previous three months, a third had been harassed, and nearly one in five had been threatened. And if you break it down further, you find that those numbers are actually even higher uh, when we're talking about local officials who are women or racial or ethnic minorities. Um, and interestingly, you know, this is actually happening in all kinds of places, small places, big, big towns and big cities. It tends to be more common in the more populous locations. And uh, these types of events were experienced by Democrats, Republicans and independents.
9: Can you give us some context, like how bad has this harassment and hostility gotten?
28: Well, for some local officials, um, it's actually gotten to the point where they don't feel physically safe in their communities. Um, I spoke with Shannon Hiller of the nonpartisan Bridging Divides Initiative about this. um, That's housed at Princeton University. And she says that the hostility toward racial and ethnic minorities in particular is often accompanied by dehumanizing language.
18: I think sometimes it can be easy to dismiss that just as words, but you have those same officials saying, I don't shop at the grocery store in my home. I'm telling my daughter to go out of state to school, um, you know, that kind of real change in their behavior and their feeling of safety in their community.
28: Ari, um, Hiller's group worked with the nonprofit survey group Civic Pulse on this research, and they've been doing these surveys quarterly over the past year. Uh, And in interviews with survey respondents, she said that this feeling of elevated and and pervasive hostility is fairly new um, in that it really started just during the last three years, during the pandemic, and it hasn't decreased since then.
9: What sorts of grievances are behind these incidents of hostility?
28: Hiller says that respondents have shared that the issues have mostly been related to local matters like um, housing, utilities and zoning. And that's interesting because it adds to the reporting that we heard earlier today from our colleague, Miles Parks, uh, where he looked at high turnover among local election officials. You know, we're seeing that now because of um, increased threats, um, And it appears to be distinct from threats also that are happening on hot-button issues like LGBTQ and abortion rights. I think what's most troubling is that many who responded to the survey said that they believe that the most severe of these threats, uh, so the harassment and even attacks, will only increase the closer that we get to the election.
9: Just briefly, any suggestions for reducing the temperature?
28: Yeah, Hiller's group is looking into that. And she says it's key to help um, your local officials feel less isolated when this kind of um, hostility occurs. So um, public supports of statement, uh, public statements of support for them, or even chalk messages outside their offices with encouraging words.
9: NPR domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef. Thank you.
28: Thank you.
0: This is NPR News. Coming up in about six minutes on WBUR's All Things Considered, Olivia Rodrigo talks about songwriting and success at the age of 20. Follow the news each day on the WBUR app. Tap once to listen live, tap again to pause and rewind. Get the WBUR app in the App Store today. Final Fenway series for the Red Sox will be a quick one. Just two games against the Tampa Bay Rays. Boston puts up Tanner Houck to face Zach Eflin for the Rays tonight at Fenway. Way Park. Bruins are in Buffalo to play the Sabres for the second game of preseason play. 59 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our
7: listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical now through November 5th. More at theumbrellaarts.org and Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house October 1st, buacademy.org. I'm Rupa
20: Shanoi. Many of our listeners tell us WBUR is essential in their lives. They say WBUR makes the world a better and more informed place. We're the new source they trust most. We want to be here for the long term, but our future isn't guaranteed. Giving monthly is the key to keeping WBUR strong. Help get us to our fall fundraising goal of 2,500 new monthly contributors. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org.
19: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. President Biden visited Wayne, Michigan today, where auto workers continue their strike. What do we want? Contracts. What do we want? Now. What, do we want? Now. what do we want? Contracts. The United Auto Workers Union went on strike against select plants at the major Detroit Automakers on September 15th. Biden told them today that they had saved the auto industry when it went through tough times and deserve higher pay now that the auto industry is doing well. A New York judge ruled today that former President Donald Trump deceives banks and insurance companies in his real estate business for years. The ruling came in a civil lawsuit brought last year. Several other issues in that case must still be decided. The trial begins Monday. California Governor Gavin Newsom has signed a law making it more difficult for local school districts to ban books. From member station KQED in San Francisco, Marissa Lagos reports. The legislation grew out of a dispute between Democratic state leaders and a school board in Southern California. The conservative majority board in Temecula refused this spring to approve a new social studies curriculum because it mentioned gay rights icon Harvey Milk. Here's Newsom in a video posted online.
6: Now increasingly here in the state of California, where we have school districts, large and small, banning books, uh, banning free speech, criminalizing librarians and teachers. And we want to do more than just push back rhetorically against that.
19: The bill bars school boards from banning instructional materials that provide inclusive and diverse perspectives. It allows the state to buy textbooks and find districts that reject approved curriculum for discriminatory reasons. For NPR News, I'm Marisa Lagos in San Francisco. Newsom also signed a bill today to double the state taxes on guns and ammunition. The money raised would be spent partly on increasing security in schools. This is
0: NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts state leaders are sharing the details of a $1 billion tax reform plan they are likely to approve this week. The package would provide about $561 million in relief, for the fiscal year that began July 1st and more than a billion dollars in relief once it takes full effect in 2027. The plan's largest provision is for a more than $300 million credit for some 565,000 families with children and dependents. It would also raise the threshold for the state's estate tax from one to $2 million. State lawmakers will begin to vote on the plan tomorrow. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is joining the Federal Trade Commission and 16 other states in a lawsuit against the retail behemoth Amazon. The antitrust suit alleges Amazon uses its position in the marketplace to inflate prices on other platforms, overcharge sellers, and stifle competition. It asks the court to break up Amazon's monopoly and restore competition. Amazon said in a comment that its practices have helped spur competition and innovation across the retail industry. Tonight, Roxbury Community College will put a spotlight on the legacy of busing in Boston. It's the first of a series of events over the next year to mark 50 years since the courts ordered Boston public schools to desegregate. WBR's Amanda Beland has more from one of the organizers.
5: In the 1970s, Michael Curry was bused from his home in Roxbury to school in Charlestown. He says now is the time to reflect on the motivations of those who protested busing and desegregation.
6: I'd love to understand what was in their heart and their minds when they stood out on those streets. And this project that we've been doing has allowed us to have those types of conversations.
5: Tonight's event focuses on the community organizing that led up to the 1974 desegregation ruling. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland. 58 degrees in Boston, the forecast is ahead.
7: WBUR supporters include Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at
0: scienceclubforgirls.org. Tonight should be partly cloudy and cold, about 46 for a low. Tomorrow, sun's back, still breezy. Temperatures in the mid-60s again, same thing for Thursday. Bright skies with highs in the 66-degree range. This is 90.9
15: WBUR. The time is 5.35. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people, and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. This is NPR.
9: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington.
8: And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Olivia Rodrigo is on a trajectory to be one of the biggest pop stars in the world. She's already made history as the youngest artist ever to debut at the top of the Billboard Hot 100 chart. She's won three Grammys, and her first single, Driver's License, has, as of now, garnered nearly 2 billion streams on Spotify. And guess what? She's only 20 years old, people, and now she's out with another number one album, Guts. It's a spunky, uproarious mix of riot girl rock and the kind of introspective ballad writing that's made Rodrigo a household
31: name. You must be insecure, you must be so unhappy, not heart. Her people, her people, and we both drew blood, but man, those cuts were never equal
24: But
8: despite all the success of her first album, Rodrigo told me that she wanted to showcase on this new album how much she has grown as an artist.
31: I mean I wrote Sour when I was 17 and I wrote most of Guts when I was 19 and 20 and I just think those few years in between 17 and 20 are probably like some of the most formative that you'll ever have in your life. I think yeah. I grew so much just as a, as a person as a young woman. I think I just wanted Guts to maybe reflect that maturity and I think that I'm a little bit more self-possessed, and, and more confident, and know what I want to say more. And um, I, th- I think the record is also kind of fun and a little cheeky at times. Whatever, it's fine. That was a sort of side of me that I think didn't really get showcased a ton on Sour, and something that I was happy to kind of express this time around.
8: Well, I am so interested in this question of how an artist decides who to be when so many people around them are telling them what to be, right? And you come from this long line of singers whose stories started with Disney. Miley Cyrus, Mm -hmm. Selena Gomez, Demi Lovato, not to mention even back further, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera. And yeah, being a child star did help launch each of you. But have you found that that past kind of limits you, too, as you're trying to develop your own unique voice as an artist.
31: I often think about that lineage of, you know, I'm very proud to be a a part of that group of women. I think they're incredible. I have always been very steadfast in my desire to have complete creative control over my career. And I think there's this perception of, of a Disney girl, this archetype of a Disney girl who's this sort of pop star who maybe sings other people's songs or something like that. And Mm -hmm. um, that was always something that I resented growing up because writing songs is my first love. It's my biggest passion in life. And I just always wanted to have autonomy over over what I said and and did. And I I feel really, really incredibly fortunate that I've been able to forge a path in the music industry that feels completely like my own. I write all my songs. I'm I'm such a part of all of the creative of it. And uh, yeah, I just feel incredibly fortunate that I was, um, given an environment where I, I could do that. It's not something they take for granted.
8: What about the fact that you do have some pretty young fans? Is there a lot of pressure to live up to some image you cultivated years ago when you were a teenager while trying to now evolve as an adult? Like, is there <laughs> some tension there as you're thinking about how to keep those young fans but give yourself voice To be the adult woman you are and say and talk about the things that you're living through in your adult life.
31: I definitely think about that a lot. When am I gonna stop being wise beyond my ears and just start being wise? When am I gonna stop being a pretty young thing that guys I don't take it lightly when you know young girls come up to me and say that they look up to me or, you know, if I'm a role model to them in some way. And I've certainly gotten some um, some side eyes from some concerned parents over the, <laughs> the swear words in my songs <laughs> in my career. That's definitely happened. But I feel like I've grown up with so many incredibly strong, talent-inspiring role models, women songwriters that I've looked up to for a long time. And uh, when I look back, I think that all of them were my heroes, particularly because they were exactly who they were um, and they didn't censor parts of themselves or, or cherry-pick parts of themselves to present to the public. I'll blow out the candles, happy birthday to me. cuz your whole life ahead of you, you're only 19. But I fear that they already got all the best parts of me. Sorry that I couldn't always be your teenage dream When I played shows for for the last tour I would just look out in the audience and I'd see all these young girls who would, you know, be screaming these angry songs just like crying and like feeling feeling so many emotions that they could just let out at this concert and that was always just the most inspiring thing to me. I I think you know that's not something that girls are maybe encouraged to do on an everyday basis.
8: must be an amazing feeling to hear a stadium full of people repeating your words back to you. I can't imagine anybody doing that with an NPR story.
31: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. You never know.
8: I mean, you're reaching so many people not just with your lyrics, but with your sound. And I'm talking about people of all ages, particularly older people like me, because I hear influences in your music from artists that were big before you were even born Alanis (laughs) Morissette, Blink 182, Avril Lavigne, Green Day, Bikini Kill, 80s New Wave. this huge range of musical influences in your songs how did you acquire that taste in music like are we listening to stuff that your parents would play when you were growing
31: up in southern california yeah i think i um i give my parents a lot of credit for my music taste they love like 90s alternative rock which is yeah. like probably my favorite genre of music i love listening to that also i think at a young age i kind of fell in love with the female singer-songwriters for the first time. I I remember I got a record player for Christmas one year. My grandma got me a record player. I was probably 12 or 13 and my mom and I would go to the thrift store and we'd pick out records that we thought were cool and looked interesting and that's how I kind of fell in love with Carole King and Pat Benatar and Joni Mitchell and all of these female singer-songwriters that I just thought were the coolest and then just wanted to emulate. You had a way cooler upbringing
8: than I did. <laughs>
31: oh, I doubt that.
8: <laughs> I was doing math flashcards while you were at the record store. Oh,
31: I was doing plenty of that too.
8: <laughs> well, speaking of growing up in Southern California, are you still really bad at parallel parking? Because I am.
31: Oh, this is a great question. Okay, we're talking about growth, you know, from 17 to 20. And in my, in my first album, I talked about how I was bad at parallel parking. And I'm not cool and I'm not smart and I can't even parallel park. And actually, I think I am okay now. It's it's my crowning. Really? It's my highest achievement. Like, I'm I'm so proud of myself. I, I worked on it for a while. Well, maybe <laughs> you're going to have to give
8: me lessons and practice with me because I am 47 years old and I'm still really awful at it.
31: <laughs> Anytime.
8: <laughs> Olivia Rodrigo. Her new album, Guts, is out now. Thank you so much, Olivia. I so love talking to you.
31: Oh, my gosh. Pleasure's online. Thank you again for having me. And now now
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Every time you use your credit card, the retailer pays a fee, about 2.25%. Some of it goes to the bank that issued the card, some to the credit card company for processing the sale, and some might go back to the customer as a reward. Retailers complain that swipe fees are much higher in the U.S. than other countries, but a new bill might change that, as NPR's Scott Horsley reports.
21: Paying two and a quarter cents on every dollar of sales might not sound like much, but it adds up fast. Victor Garcia, who runs a pair of ice cream stores near Fort Worth, Texas, says swipe fees cost him more than $25,000 last year. He's posted signs near the cash register urging customers to think twice before reaching for their credit card. We pay $25,000 in credit card fees. If you have cash on you, we would absolutely
23: love it if you paid with cash today.
21: Garcia says most customers have no idea when they buy a scoop of mango ice cream that the credit card companies are taking such a big bite. Most
2: are shocked.
26: Half of them say, my gosh, I
2: have no cash. I wish I did. People don't know. They just say, hey, I get points, so I'm going to use my card.
21: Five years ago, 70 percent of Garcia's customers paid with cash. Today, it's more like 30 percent. Credit card use ballooned during the pandemic, and so did the swipe fee bill that merchants have to pay. It's up more than 50% since 2020. Some gas stations and other businesses charge extra for those customers who use credit cards, but Doug Cantor, who's general counsel for the National Association of Convenience Stores, says most retailers just spread the cost around.
26: In general, these fees are really just baked into the cost of everything we buy even consumers who are cash payers and maybe can't even qualify for a credit card pay more for every good that they buy than they really should.
21: Rewards cards typically carry an even higher swipe fee. So customers using cash or debit cards are effectively subsidizing the airline tickets, resort stays, and other rewards that go to card users, a $15 billion a year transfer that some have described as Robin Hood in reverse. It is, unfortunately, a very
0: unjust system and one that's hidden from most of us, so we really just don't even know that it's happening.
21: Swipe fees are set by the Visa and MasterCard networks, and Stanford finance professor Chenzi Shu says they're eight or nine times as high as the fees in Europe, where they're strictly regulated. Some big retailers have the clout to bargain for lower fees. Costco, for example, gets a break for accepting only Visa cards in its stores. But Xu says most retailers have little choice but to pay whatever Visa and MasterCard demand.
28: If you happen to walk in with just a MasterCard, they don't want to give up on your purchase. So the way they deal with these large fees is that they just pass on
25: the prices to their products.
21: A bipartisan group of lawmakers is pushing a bill that would require big credit card issuers to allow a network other than Visa and MasterCard to process transactions in hopes the competition would lead to lower fees. Banks and the credit card networks are pushing back. Richard Hunt, who chairs their lobbying group, the Electronic Payments Coalition, calls the proposal government overreach.
29: Look, if a merchant doesn't want the credit card,
26: there are other alternatives, cash or checks, but we know America loves their credit cards.
21: Victor Garcia knows that too. He's tried offering a discount for cash at his ice cream stores, and even set prices in whole dollars so customers don't have to juggle change. None of it's made much difference. His swipe fee bill keeps going up. That's a really hard thing to say, hey, we're gonna go out and try to change consumer habits. We kind
24: of stopped. We said, OK, we're going to let that fee be a part of, you know, basically built it into
21: the price. Garcia says he backs the credit card competition bill 100 percent in hopes of getting swipe fees down from two and a quarter. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington.
0: This is All Things Considered. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. It took a while, but the sunshine finally burned through the clouds this afternoon. Tonight should be partly cloudy and pretty cold, about 46 degrees for a low. Tomorrow, the sunshine is back, still breezy, temperatures in the mid-60s again. Same thing for Thursday, bright skies with high temperatures in the 66-degree range. 57 degrees now in Boston at 549.
16: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Science Festival, presenting an evening of live comedy, film screenings, performance poetry, art installations, and more. This Friday, cambridgesciencefestival.org. WBUR's new Field Guide to Boston can help you discover
0: and rediscover the hub. Neighborhoods, history, urban legends, and wicked good fun. Check it out at wbur.org slash fieldguide. Final Fenway series for the Red Sox is going to be a quick one. Just two games against the Tampa Bay Rays. Boston puts up Tanner Houck to face Zach Eflin of the Rays tonight. Start time is seven ten.
16: This is WBUR in Boston. WBUR supporters include Brigham & Women's Hospital. For expert, research-based obstetric and gynecologic care, turn to Brigham & Women's, specialists in women's health with the latest innovative treatments for complex conditions. U.S. News ranks Brigham & Women's number one for obstetric and gynecologic care in the country. Brighamandwomens.org.
1: A lot of people can no longer live near their jobs. But for Forest Service staff in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, it's become almost impossible.
2: More than half of the time we offer a job, people are saying I can't. would love to, but I can't afford it. I need housing.
1: Now the Forest Service is working with a private developer to build affordable housing in the park. So who gets
8: in? Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News.
20: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
8: This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Elsa Chang. And
9: I'm Ari Shapiro. Seven candidates take the stage for the second Republican primary debate on Wednesday, tomorrow. Yet again, the GOP frontrunner won't be there. Instead, former President Donald Trump is holding his own counterprogramming in Michigan. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben is here. Danielle, Trump won't be at this debate, and he's ahead by a long shot. So what's the point? Is the debate still meaningful?
25: Uh, excellent question. And, you know, I wondered that myself. So, I reached out to several Republican strategists to see what they thought. And here's what Alice Stewart had to say. She's a veteran of multiple GOP presidential campaigns. She told me that she's been talking to a lot of Republicans, including the current presidential campaigns. And here's what she's heard.
22: A lot of the candidates are afraid to uh, go after Donald Trump because they don't want to alienate the base, but they can't do that anymore. It's not working. So yes, the candidates
25: have these two big imperatives to differentiate themselves from each other, but really what she's saying is it's high time that they try to differentiate themselves from Trump much more than they did at that last debate. At that last debate, we saw a little of this. We saw former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley taking Trump to task for heavy spending during his presidency. So you can bet that candidates will be trying to differentiate themselves from him even more this time, but the question is how much? Because... You'll remember we saw that really revealing, really awkward moment in the first debate when the moderator asked the candidates, would you support Trump as the nominee if he's convicted of a crime? And there was waiting. There was looking around there. They took some time to answer. And so the question is, will they have firmer stances this time? How scared are they of alienating Trump's voters?
9: Yeah. So that's one thing you're going to be looking for. What else do you have your eye on?
25: Uh, To get away from Trump a little bit, I'm going to be watching for abortion because abortion is a very important topic to Republicans, especially evangelical Christian voters. But it is also a topic that Republicans have been struggling to talk about in recent months. Uh, To get back to Trump here, he has had his own issues. He's been kind of squishy on this. He won't say what he wants the law to be. Rather, he has been saying he wants to have people for and against abortion rights come together and reach a compromise. Now, other candidates will definitely attack him as too moderate. People like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis have been doing that already. Not to be clear, Trump is not a moderate. He celebrates the overturn of Roe as often as he can. But this is definitely one place that other candidates see a weakness. Beyond that, I'm very curious how candidates see other really important topics in the news right now, like the shutdown. What do they think about uh, the government shutdown that is being caused by hardline Republicans in the House? Beyond that, uh, how do they respond to the strike in Michigan, which is, of course, where Trump is going tomorrow night? There are so many interesting questions that could be asked. I really hope they get to the substance of those things.
9: You mentioned Trump is going to Michigan. Uh, He's doing his own event, acting like he's the nominee, attacking Biden, not his opponents. And he's really far ahead in the polls. Can any of these candidates really beat him?
25: You know, there's two ways to look at this. One is that he has an insurmountable lead, is that this is 2016 all over again, where you have Trump and you have all the other candidates trying to be the Trump alternative and failing. That is very possible, of course, given the lead that he has, which is huge. But the other uh, option is that he has weaknesses that can be exploited. As Stewart told me, some social conservatives really are very angry at Trump about not taking a stronger stance on abortion. Honestly, to me, the most interesting thing that these debates or one of the most interesting things that these debates show us is just how much Trump has changed the party. There are just so few old fashioned uh, establishment type Republicans running what we would call conservative campaigns now. Yeah. And instead, this party has taken this populist turn. Uh, It's going to be really fascinating to watch.
9: And Pierre's Daniel Kurtzleben. Thank you.
25: Thank you. Among the big retailers, one word has been coming up a
8: lot, shrinkage. That basically means stuff that has gone missing, either by corporate mismanagement, fraud, or another reason that's been surfacing in headlines, theft. Patty Hirsch and Weyland Wong from Planet Money's The Indicator explain how some
13: companies are handling it. Need true space. That's been a while since I set foot in a Best Buy but I popped around to one of the electronic retailer's stores last week to take a look at how they deal with customer theft there. Not that I plan to steal anything, you understand.
11: No, you were there to pay $18.99 for a compact disc.
13: <laughs> I was actually looking for a cable, but anyway. Oh, okay. And this is space. There was a security person on the door there, and there was plenty of inventory on the shelves. But in some cases, for some of the most, I don't know, easy-to-pocket items, There's nothing there. There are just these little laminated labels with QR codes on them. If you want the item in question, you just scan the thing with your phone and a customer service person will bring it to you.
11: This is all aimed at combating a problem that many retailers say is one of the biggest issues they're facing right now. Theft. Organized retail crime is part of what the National Retail Federation calls external theft, where people walk into your store and steal stuff.
13: Hayley Peterson heron wrote about this in a recent story for Insider, where she's a deputy executive editor.
3: We've been hearing so many companies talking more about it lately, particularly on earnings calls, Target,
23: Walmart, Dick's Sporting Goods, Dollar General.
13: External theft is the biggest cause of shrink, 37 percent, but it's not the only cause. If you add in the other causes of shrink, which is theft of inventory by employees, and loss of inventory by corporate mismanagement, those two internal problems actually add up to a lot more than external theft, 54%.
11: And what's more, while companies are making a big deal about it in their earnings calls of late, shrinkage as a proportion of corporate profits is not growing.
13: Still, Haley says companies are focusing on external theft as an issue that they do need to deal with.
11: Some companies are finding ways to combat external theft. Costco is one, Best Buy is another.
13: In a recent earnings call, for example, the Best Buy CEO talked about a few strategies that they deployed to tamp down on external theft, many of which I saw firsthand when I was in the store.
25: One
23: of those is employing security workers at store entrances. They have more salespeople across the floor. And she also said that they have very few self-checkout registers. And self-checkouts have often been blamed for rising theft.
11: At least until recently, many retailers have not taken Best Buy's approach. They saw shrinkage as just another cost of doing business.
13: Yeah, but Haley says the comments that she's heard recently by companies on this issue signal a change. And she says we're already seeing stores step up their crime-fighting game, beyond merely putting guards on the doors and locking up high-value items. You can increase cameras and the visibility of those cameras.
11: All of these security measures not only cost money, they can also impact the customer experience.
13: Yeah, I have to say, on my visit to Best Buy, the occasional lack of physical products on the floor was mildly frustrating. I mean, it is hard to compare two pairs of headphones, for example, when they're not physically in front of you and you're just looking at two QR codes instead. I don't know, maybe that's just our new retail reality.
15: Waylon Wong,
13: Patty Hirsch, NPR News.
15: Support for Planet Money comes from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
15: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Proven Winners, with Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, offering a varied selection of species to bring year-round interest to landscapes and gardens. ProvenWinnersColorChoice.com slash shrubs. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography, kauffman.org. From Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale, dataiku.com and from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday evening. 59 degrees now could fall all the way to the mid-40s overnight tonight. Tomorrow should be mainly sunny, breezy, and dry. Could make it to the mid-60s. Thursday, pretty much a repeat. Generally sunny and dry. Highs about 66. We're funded
7: by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington,
0: presenting Fat Ham. The
7: 2022 Pulitzer Prize winner reinvents Hamlet with a queer black twist. Join Juicy, the saucy protagonist, in a sharp, deliciously funny take on the Shakespeare classic, Fat Ham, playing now through October 29th at the Huntington
3: Calderwood. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: The Federal Trade Commission and 17 states, including Massachusetts, are suing Amazon, saying the retail giant has abused its monopoly power in a way that hurts shoppers and sellers.
7: Amazon
11: is raising prices on American consumers and small businesses and engaging in a concerted strategy to unlawfully exclude rivals and undermine competition.
0: Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The case could prove existential for Amazon. Also ahead, secular and religious demonstrators clash during the observance of Yom Kippur in Israel. The encounters highlight the ongoing battle over the direction of the country's democracy. The Biden administration has suggested overdose deaths are finally leveling off, but new data show the number of deaths caused by fentanyl has grown. These stories and the irresistible intersection of pop music stardom and NFL brawn coming up. It's 6.01.
6: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. U.S. President Joe Biden joined the United Auto Workers picket line today in support of the union's efforts. As Marlon Hyde with member station WABE in Atlanta reports, the strike is affecting plants from Michigan all the way down to Georgia.
2: On a windy day in Morrow, Georgia, the blue and gold United Auto Workers flag waves atop a plant that produces parts for Stellantis, one of the big three. Hank Flanory has worked in the auto industry for over 30 years. The price of gas
21: is going up, and these companies think that we're just supposed to sit stagnant and make what we're making. No, we have to move with the times. I mean, we just can't keep making what we're making. Right now, we can't even afford to buy a Chrysler.
8: As negotiations continue between the UAW and the Big Three, thousands of
6: workers continue to walk the picket line with signs saying, UAW on strike. For NPR News, I'm Marlon Hyde in Atlanta. A growing number of Senate Democrats are now calling for New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez to resign after he was indicted on corruption charges. That includes fellow New Jersey Senator Cory Booker. Here's NPR Susan Davis.
3: In a lengthy statement, Booker said he found the allegations hard to reconcile with the person he knows. He said Menendez stepping down would not serve as an admission of guilt, but a recognition that there should be higher standards for public officials. More than a dozen fellow Senate Democrats are calling for Menendez to resign, and more are expected. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has not publicly weighed in on the matter yet, saying only in a statement last week that Menendez was entitled to due process and a fair trial. At a Monday press conference, Menendez said he would not resign and would fight what he called a politically motivated prosecution. Susan Davis, NPR News, Washington.
6: J.P. Morgan Chase is agreeing to settle a lawsuit with the U.S. Virgin Islands centering on the bank's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. As NPR's David Gurr reports, the suit claims J.P. Morgan enabled sex trafficking by the disgraced financier.
4: The attorney general for the U.S. Virgin Islands called the $75 million settlement historic. J.P. Morgan Chase has agreed to implement and maintain anti-trafficking measures. It pledges to do more due diligence on its customers. $10 million will pay for mental health services for Jeffrey Epstein's survivors. $20 million will pay for attorney's fees. Epstein banked with J.P. Morgan for 15 years until the bank cut ties with him, and he moved his money to Deutsche Bank, which reached a similar agreement earlier this year. In June, J.P. Morgan settled another lawsuit brought by some of Epstein's victims for $290 million. In both settlements, the bank has not admitted any liability. Epstein died in 2019. David Gurra, NPR News, New York.
6: The chair of the Federal Communications Commission says she intends to move quickly to reinstate net neutrality rules that were rescinded under former President Trump. Chair Jessica Rosenworcel asking colleagues to vote to largely put in place rules in preventing Internet providers from favoring some Internet content over others. The Dow fell 388 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell testified today in support of a bill that would raise the minimum age for criminally charging someone as an adult. Here's WBUR's Deborah Becker.
22: The bill would raise the age for charging someone as an adult in Massachusetts from 18 to 21. Attorney General Campbell told the legislature's Judiciary Committee that incarcerating young people in adult correctional facilities does not make communities safer. In fact, young people have the highest, not the
19: middle, not somewhere in the bottom, the highest recidivism rate of any demographic in the adult system.
22: Campbell says science suggests that young adults' brains are not as developed as adults, and they're more open to rehabilitation. The bill would raise the age over five years. For 90.9 WBUR. I'm Deborah Becker.
0: Massachusetts Senate Republicans are urging President Biden to help with the migrant crisis in the state. Their letter says the state's shelters and health care facilities are overwhelmed by the large number of migrant families moving here. The lawmakers call for expedited work permits for the migrants and for increased federal aid to help local resources, including shelter and education. Milford police have arrested two more people accused of running an illegal dental practice in a convenience store. Police Maria Magdalena Guaman Castro rented out a room in the back of the Alternativa convenience store to a man named Juan Hermida Munoz. Munoz does not have a dental license in the U.S., but he performed exams, tooth extractions, and cleanings in the back of the store, according to police. A Boston-based reproductive rights organization is expanding its operation in New England. Reproductive Equity Now says it will bring its public education and advocacy work to Connecticut and New Hampshire. The nonprofit's president, Rebecca Hart Holder, says it wants to build a regional block for abortion access in New England now that 20 states have moved to restrict or a uh, ban abortion. A little bit chilly this evening. Tonight should be partly cloudy and pretty cold, down to the mid-40s overnight. Tomorrow, sun's back, still breezy in the mid-60s again. Same thing for Thursday, bright skies with highs in the 66-degree range. 57 degrees now in Boston at
13: 6.07. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts.
8: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. On Sunday, a televised football game produced such intense scrutiny that we can now surmise the condiments preferred by one Taylor Swift. The answers are ketchup and seemingly ranch. We will explain in a few minutes. First, this hour, some more serious news. The U.S. and 17 states are suing Amazon. They say the retail giant has abused its monopoly power, leading to higher costs for sellers and shoppers, We'll note that Amazon is among NPR's recent financial supporters and pays to distribute some of our content, but we cover it like any other company. NPR's Alina Seljuk is here to tell us more about the lawsuit. Hey, Alina. Hello, hello. Okay, what's in the suit? What are the details?
10: Um, The suit itself could be pretty existential for Amazon. It is a sweeping antitrust case built by the Federal Trade Commission and a bipartisan group of attorneys general. It's filed in federal court in Seattle. And to your question, it accuses Amazon of breaking the law to remain the undefeated defeated winner of online retail. And it largely focuses on how Amazon treats sellers on the platform.
9: Explain. What what kind of example can you give us?
10: Yeah. So to step back, most of what you buy on Amazon, about 60%, is sold by other companies, these third-party sellers. And Amazon has a tricky relationship with them. For them, it's both the owner of the marketplace where they sell and a competitor on the very same marketplace. So It controls advertising. It controls what you see when you search for stuff. And in simple terms, it could mean Amazon knows if you're selling something that's suddenly really popular. People really wanted, and Amazon can maybe sell the exact same thing for maybe Amazon less. Amazon Basics,
9: I think they're called.
10: And they can tweak the search results so that that Amazon option comes up higher. Huh. Uh, but it, it can go also deeper than that.
9: Explain how so.
10: So Amazon also has this huge delivery network, as we all know. And the lawsuit alleges that Amazon pressures sellers to use, uh, to to pay for using it. And for sellers, that means Amazon can charge more and more. And they can't really use any other shipping option. Hmm. And then there's the big accusation about prices. The lawsuit alleges that Amazon punishes sellers if they try to offer cheaper prices elsewhere on the internet. Here's what FTC Chair
11: Alina Khan said. Amazon's conduct causes online shoppers to face artificially high prices even when they're shopping somewhere other than Amazon.
10: Between the cut that Amazon takes from every sale, the shipping, perhaps advertising, she says after all of Amazon's fees, sellers effectively keep only half of what they make on the platform. But they also can't afford to leave. It's the top destination. And in the end, shoppers pay the price.
9: So what kind of a solution is the FTC asking for? What do the FTC and state attorneys general want the court to do?
10: They're asking uh, the court to force Amazon to change its anti-competitive behavior. No, the case isn't going as far as it could have. There is no language asking the court to, say, split up the company. But the case will take years to play out. So all of that could change.
9: What's Amazon said today?
10: Amazon, in a statement, argued the FTC's claims are wrong, um, that the lawsuit radically departs from the agency's mission to protect consumers. The company argues that if the government wins, the result would be, quote, uh, fewer products to choose from, higher prices, slower deliveries for consumers, and reduced options for small businesses.
9: Now, in another part of the show, we'll hear about the FTC chair's history of criticizing Amazon. It has been in her sights for so many years. Yes. Why is the commission bringing this case now?
10: So it has been working on this case for a while. The investigation did begin under President Trump. Um, But yes, Khan is a part of this new group of lawyers um, under President Biden, who are really skeptical of big tech, who are rethinking competition law. And she did rise to prominence arguing that today's tech giants, and Amazon in particular, operate much like the oil barons and railroad tycoons back in the day, and perhaps should be similarly broken up. So now that the investigation has reached the point of a case, she gets to test at least part of this legal thinking in federal court.
9: NPR's Alina Seljuk, thank you.
10: Thank you.
8: In Israel, the usually solemn day of atonement, Yom Kippur, saw new controversy over the fate of the country's democracy. Protesters drove out a religious group that was seeking to pray in an iconic secular location and to conduct those prayers while segregating men and women. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv.
12: It took place Sunday night, the eve of Yom Kippur, in Tel Aviv, Israel's most secular liberal city. Several hundred protesters chanted shame at an Orthodox Jewish group setting up a Yom Kippur prayer service in a main public square at the heart of the city. The religious group's aim is to spread Judaism among Tel Aviv's youth, and the municipality allowed it to hold the prayers, but the city and Israel's Supreme Court had ruled the group could not set up a physical partition to separate men from women, as is orthodox custom. They did it anyway, and protesters tore down the divider, made of string and Israeli flags, and also blocked other public gender partitions in other cities. Orly Erez-Lichovsky of the Liberal Israeli Religious Action Center celebrated this as a victory. She's won legal battles against ultra-Orthodox Jewish discrimination against women on buses, public health clinics, and on the radio.
7: Seeing the sites was heartbreaking. You know, for me, it was very, very hard to see uh, in Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day for Jews. But I think we have to understand, most Israelis are no longer willing to accept not only that extremist version of this government trying to destroy Israel's democratic nature, but also we're not going to allow um, extremist Orthodox to control our public sphere.
12: This really goes back to efforts by Israel's far-right Orthodox Jewish government to limit the powers of the Supreme Court, which it sees as too liberal. That has sparked nearly 10 months of street protests from Israelis who fear the government will erode protections for women and minorities and impose an ultra-conservative version of Judaism on the public. As Yom Kippur ended, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu railed against, quote, leftist protesters rioting against Jews. His far-right security minister, Itamar Ben-Gvir, has upped the ante. (laughs) He said he'll hold prayers at that Tel Aviv square later this week. Anarchists, he said, we'll see you try to drive us out. Opposition leaders in parliament are accusing Netanyahu of stoking religious civil war. The battle over the role of religion in the streets of Israeli cities is shaping up to be a key issue on the ballot when Israelis vote in municipal elections next month. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
8: Taylor Swift may be entering her football era. Over the weekend, the global superstar was spotted in a football stadium cheering on the Kansas City Chiefs, specifically cheering on the tight end of the Chiefs, Travis Kelsey. Swift's appearance at Sunday's game and the fact that she and Kelsey left the stadium together blew up the internet. It seemed like Everybody had something to say about the new it couple, even legendary Patriots coach Bill Belichick.
4: Travis Kelsey's had a lot of big catches in his career.
2: (laughs) This would be the biggest...
8: As for Swifties, well, they seem to have embraced their queen's new boo. Sales for Kelsey's football jersey reportedly skyrocketed since Sunday. And here to talk about this meeting of two super fandoms is Nora Princiati, staff writer for The Ringer and major Swiftie herself. Hello. Hello, hello. Okay, Nora, for listeners who may not be following all the ins and outs of Taylor Swift's dating life— Give us a brief timeline of the rumored Swift Kelsey love story. How did this all start?
14: So it started in July when Travis Kelsey went to one of Taylor's Eras Tour shows when she was in Kansas City. And he did something that a lot of Swift fans have done at the Eras Tour, which is that he made and wore and brought a friendship bracelet. And he did a funny thing, which is that he put his phone number on a friendship bracelet. I know, very savvy. And he tried to get it to Taylor, but was unsuccessful. Then he told the story, Of not getting through the inner circle Uh on his podcast with his brother who's another nfl player and then the rumors start but that was what seeded some form of communication between the two of them that ended in taylor accepting travis's invitation to show up at arrowhead stadium To see the Chiefs play the Bears on Sunday. In
8: perfect Chiefs colors. Okay, well, Swifties are famously passionate about the pop star. Football fans are also famously passionate about their teams. Can you just compare these two fandoms for me? Like, is knowing your favorite NFL player stats kind of like being able to identify all the little Easter eggs that Taylor's known to hide in her songs?
18: It
14: sort of is for two groups that i think in some ways don't identify as having very much in common with each other there's an enthusiasm and a detail orientation and an obsessive quality that definitely I love that
8: they're colliding
14: now (laughs) yeah it's really great there's a couple key differences though one is that NFL players for the scope of, of the NFL writ large, you know, it's the biggest American professional sport. The players themselves can be relatively anonymous when they play. You can't really see their faces. There's 53 guys on every roster. It's not the same type of superstardom that you find even in other sports and definitely not in pop music.
8: I want to know, what about the NFL and all of this? Because as we mentioned, sales for Travis Kelsey's jersey have apparently skyrocketed, and that could very well be because of Taylor's fans. And I saw that many of the post-game questions were about Taylor Swift's appearance at the game. The commentators were all talking about it. Is Taylor Swift going to be awesome or terrible for the NFL and the future of football? What do you think? Well, I suppose that remains to be
14: seen. I do think in general— the NFL is incredibly excited about getting a piece of the Taylor spotlight. You could already tell over the summer because the Ares Tour concerts, they were all in NFL stadiums. Mm -hmm. And the football team that played in whatever stadium she was visiting, their social media account, their whole operation would bend over backwards to come up (laughs) with something that, you know, allowed them to sort of connect with the Taylor Swift fan base. So the NFL, which does want to improve its exposure and appeal to women, especially, I think is thrilled about this.
8: That is Nora Princiati, staff writer for The Ringer and host of every single album, a pop music podcast. Thank you so much for breaking this down for us. Absolutely.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: What to do about salt water in the Mississippi River coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered.
7: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts Center presenting Lizzie. Lizzie Borden finally gets her say in this ghost story meets rock concert musical now through November 5th.
0: More at theumbrellaarts.org. Stocks gave up a lot of ground today. The Dow lost more than one and a tenth percent. It's worst day since March. S&P and NASDAQ both lost about one and a half percent. Lawmakers on Beacon Hill are considering raising the state's minimum wage. One proposal discussed at a hearing today would bring it from $15 an hour to $20 an hour by the year 2027. Supporters say a higher minimum wage would decrease staff turnover and strengthen the economy. Steve Clark of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association is against the change.
2: Jobs that paid $15 only two years ago are now $18 and $19 an hour. And those jobs that were $19 and $20 an hour are now $22, $23 an hour. We continue to add the cost to the restaurant, and then the buying power of the public continues to diminish. So we're kind of in this circle of increased cost and increased wages.
0: A separate ballot question that would appear in 2024 would raise the minimum wage for tipped workers to the same wage as other workers. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners. And by Stepping Stone, for a future where all students have access to a college education. Learn how you can support Boston students today at SteppingStone.org.
20: Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love
0: running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. The Red Sox are finishing out the season with games against the two clubs with the best records in the American League, Tampa Bay and then Baltimore. Tampa Bay comes up tonight for a quick two-night series at Fenway, and then the Sox head down to Baltimore. Bruins are in Buffalo to play the Sabres for the second game of preseason play. In the forecast overnight tonight... Cold down around the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be sunny with temperatures in the mid-60s. Thursday, sunny, sticking to the mid-60s. Pretty much the same thing on uh, Friday, possibly. Maybe a few clouds moving on Friday.
16: Should be dry throughout the stretch. 57 degrees now in Boston at 620. WBUR supporters include Cambridge Science Festival, presenting Art Night, an evening of satirical comedy, film screenings, award-winning performance poetry, groundbreaking art installations, and more. This Friday, reserve your tickets now at cambridgesciencefestival.org. And Johnson & Wales University, bringing a hands-on learning approach online. From computer science to psychology, JWU has flexible and convenient online options. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm
8: Elsa Chang.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro. For months, the Biden administration has said drug overdose deaths are finally leveling off or even declining slightly. Well, now new data out of New York City and other parts of the U.S. undercut that hope. These numbers show dramatic increases in fatal drug deaths caused by fentanyl. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann is here to explain this latest information. Hey, Brian. Hi there, Ari. Let's start in New York City, where you are today. What's happening there?
17: Well, these latest numbers uh, that are from 2022 are, are pretty grim. They show a 12% increase from the year before, with more than 3,000 people dying from drugs uh, in that year. That's a new record. The old normal for New York City until about 2011 was five to 600 drug deaths a year, which wasn't great, but now we've hit a number roughly five times higher and what appears to be happening is fentanyl it continues to displace other less deadly less potent street drugs and fentanyl's also being taken in really toxic cocktails with other drugs who is the most vulnerable this new report from New York City's Health Department shows, in fact, just how localized and kind of focused this public health crisis is. It's not happening equally across the city. First of all, men are four times more likely to die than women. Black New Yorkers are seeing huge increases in fatalities. And uh, another heartbreaking detail in this report is that a lot of the deaths are happening among older people with folks age 55 to 65 suffering the highest overdose rates.
9: Hmm. And beyond New York, what do the numbers look like in other parts of
17: the US? Well, the data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that the overdose crisis is is grim. Again, 111,000 deaths roughly every year. And the impact is really uneven. The latest preliminary data from the CDC shows some states like Oregon, Nevada, and Washington are seeing big spikes in drug deaths, up more than 20%, even mm-hmm. bigger than what we're seeing in New York City. Other states seeing 10% increases above levels that were already uh, pretty ugly. Interestingly, there are states like Arkansas, Indiana, and Louisiana reporting significantly fewer drug deaths right now. And frankly, the experts I've spoken to just haven't been able to explain these patterns. We don't know why those big disparities are happening.
9: So these numbers are drug deaths, but as you've explained, it's mostly fentanyl deaths. What is being done to keep fentanyl
17: off the streets? Yeah, you know, the Biden administration has ramped up efforts to target Mexican drug cartels that are supplying this fentanyl. Today, uh, the White House announced new sanctions against the Sinaloa cartel. Some cities are trying to disrupt street drug markets where fentanyl is being sold directly to people with addiction, uh, and this is in part a response to a lot of growing public concern. You know, along with the overdose deaths, we're seeing more public use of drugs right now. It's more visible, more disruptive, and that sparked community backlash. But I have to say most experts I talk to are skeptical that fentanyl trafficking can be slowed. It's a uniquely easy drug to make and smuggle, so keeping it off the streets in places like Portland and Las Vegas and New York City, you know, so far nobody's figured out how to do that.
9: So if fentanyl is not likely to go away, what's being done to reduce the number of deaths from the drug?
17: Well, the Biden administration's rolled out a bunch of new policies to try to make addiction treatment more available. Uh, They've made naloxone available to buy over the counter. That's the nasal spray that reverses opioid overdoses. State and local governments are spending more money to try to make uh, treatment available. Uh, But these efforts are running headlong into big problems like homelessness and social isolation, a more toxic street supply of drugs that's, that's really hurting people. So what I'm hearing from experts is that this is a public health crisis, Ari, that's not going to be fixed anytime soon.
9: It's NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann. Thank you. Thank you, Ari.
8: The state of Louisiana has asked for a federal emergency because of salt water that is moving up the Mississippi River. The slow-moving salty water has already seeped into drinking supplies in southern Louisiana, and it's moving up towards New Orleans. Hallie Parker with member station WWNO joins us now. Hi, Hallie. Hi. Okay, so I've heard this called a saltwater wedge. What does that mean? And why is this happening?
18: Yes. Okay, so saltwater wedge 101. Um, <laughs> right now we're in a historic drought all throughout the Mississippi River watershed, right? So there's way less water flowing down the river than usual. And, you know, when that happens, saltwater from the Gulf of Mexico can migrate upriver along the river's bottom, which is actually below sea level. Has this happened before? Yeah, so this is actually cyclical. It tends to happen once a decade down here, but usually it doesn't extend as far north as New Orleans, nor does it happen in back-to-back years like it is right now. Um, the last time the saltwater made it up this far up the river was in 1988, and mm-hmm. it only stuck around for a few days. But officials here, like Governor John Bell Edwards, have warned this time it's different.
6: Based on the current forecast, this event will be Uh, more severe and of longer duration. But there is no need uh, for panic.
8: No need for panic. Okay, well, how are residents actually reacting right now?
18: Well, as you can imagine, there's a lot of anxiety around this. Mm -hmm. Um, I know of people walking around grocery stores and leaving with eight cases of bottled water even though the city of New Orleans itself won't see effects until late October. So there's just a lot of questions about how safe it will be to drink and bathe in the water. Plus, salt water can actually be corrosive and damaging to pipes. New Orleans, like a lot of other areas, have a lot of lead pipes still left over, so there's concern about heavy metals leaching out.
8: And areas south of New Orleans have already experienced problems with their water, so what's the plan for them?
18: So, a sparsely populated area southeast of New Orleans called Plaquemines Parish actually didn't have clean tap water starting in June. Wow! And at that time, yeah, it was confined to about 2,000 people without water. And the local parish ended up distributing more than 1.5 million gallons of water a ton. (laughs) (laughs) And as the salt water moves north, it might affect drinking water for nearly a million people. So officials across all levels of government know that they have to scale up response. Um, right now, they have an underwater barrier to slow the salt water to buy them time. There's plans to eventually ship in up to 36 million gallons of fresh water per day to help water treatment plants dilute the salt and keep it to safe levels, which will take a lot of giant barges. Right. And if the salt level becomes unsafe or starts to affect infrastructure, we'll start to see distribution of bottled water and bulk water across this region, just like we did in Plaquemines Parish.
8: Do you think there's a chance that this kind of situation will happen more often in the future?
18: Well, you know, as seas, as the sea levels just continue to rise and weather like droughts grow more extreme due to human caused climate change, the experts that I talk to say that this is unlikely to become a new normal, which is important, but we could start seeing it more frequently. And that means we need to start thinking about long term adaptation.
8: That is Hallie Parker of WWNO in New Orleans. Thank you so much, Hallie.
18: Thank you, also.
9: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us. It is 57 degrees now in the Boston area. Temperatures are dropping. Could fall all the way to the mid-40s overnight tonight. Tomorrow should be a nice day. Mainly sunny, breezy, and dry. Could make it to the mid-60s. Thursday, pretty much a repeat. Generally sunny and dry. Highs about 66. Could have some clouds move in for Friday. WBUR's new field guide to Boston can help you discover and rediscover the hub. Neighborhoods, history, and urban life legends, and wicked good fun. Check it all out at wbur.org slash field guide. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Salem State University's School of Graduate Studies. Join classmates with varied professional and educational backgrounds.
7: Salemstate.edu graduate.